Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Sin City did for Zack Snyder's future career. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seth Patrick and James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of Frank Miller and Robert Rodriguez's 2005 movie Sin City. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb and James to explain to me a comic book concept... That as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, you guys, um, inspired by having Danny Rand back on our screens, I wondered if you could explain to me Shu Lao or Shao Lo or Shu Shao Lo Shao Lao the Undying, the Dragon Guy, the Iron Fist Dragon, the one who he punches in the heart. Yeah, Shao Lao. Shao Lao. James, this <laughs> seem, I yeah. think this is a this is a you question, right? <laughs> I mean, to a point, it's kind of what I'm unclear about. Is it, is it a give what... Al Kennedy a ring question? <laughs> it's more like, what What are you unclear about? Um, if he keeps getting punched in the heart, how is he the undying? Because he comes back to life every time. Does he always come back to life? Is he? Is he? Is it like he's resurrected, or is there like a new one? Uh, it's kind. Of, I guess it's kind of like a phoenix type thing where he comes back. I mean, it's kind of. This is the sort of origin that's been written over, so it's hard to say exactly what happens. Like, originally they killed Chao Lao and melted his heart, and then you got your Iron Fist power by putting your hands into the cauldron. And then at some point they were like, actually, it's funnier if... Funnier. It's, it's more interesting. from the heart. Yeah. So when... Uh, I'm just looking at a wiki page, and it says, when Danny Rand fought Chao Lao, he was reborn over 66 times. So okay, it just happens. Right, so, yeah. So 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 then Iron Fist is like the sixty sixth. Uh, Danny Rand is like the sixty sixth Iron Fist, and this poor dragon has been punched in the heart sixty six times. Yeah. Oh. Let's go with that. Also, quite interestingly, on the well, not poor dude, because the reason he is has that role is because he attacks uh, the city of Kunlun. Although, in fairness, it seems like they had captured him and were using him for entertainment. So maybe fair enough. <laughs> and are dragons a thing in the Marvel Universe, or is, there, is this just the one dragon? Uh, there are some aliens that look like dragons, like oh, Finn Kitty Fang Pride, Kitty Pryde has a little dragon, right? Yeah, but he's an alien as well, so... Oh, is he? Oh, I didn't yeah. see, I didn't know that. What's, what's he called? He's pretty cool, isn't he? Lockheed. Lo- Lockheed, yeah. 
Yeah. He's, he's, who's your favourite Marvel dragon? <laughs> well, Fin Fang Foom is obviously the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there's no is question Shao, of that. Is, is Shao Lao the worst? <laughs> I mean, he can. I mean, he can't be Danny keeps, Rand. Keeps so. getting killed. Yeah, <laughs> he's a he's a nice little metaphor for like all of the Marvel character, all of the Marvel villains, really, isn't he? Like, he gets defeated over and over again, and that's kind of. <laughs> but he keeps coming back. That's all he's and there like. To do. But but his his very existence is kind of what what gives the what gives the villain their power, the hero their power, because yeah. without oh, them, they <laughs> don't need to exist. I do like on the on the wiki page I'm looking at. It has under listed under powers. It says dragon powers. Well, indeed. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what would hit happen if Danny Rand, instead of punching him, plunged an ice javelin into his heart. That's a Game of Thrones gag that you guys don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> nope. We should start a Game of Thrones podcast where I explain it to you. I explain it to both of you without you ever watching. No, what would be better if is if you tell us the characters and we tell you what we think happens. <laughs> um, let's not do that. I I feel, I feel like it wouldn't end well. Like, for example, recent episodes of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Sick burn. Okay, um, let's move on now to the comic book, movie, and TV news section. And um, well. Uh, I think I think there's there is there's more news out there. Uh, there is more news out there to talk about. I read some stuff about uh, James Gunn talking about Marvel Cosmic and potentially introducing Nova and Channing Tatum was st- talking about Gambit starting from scratch and <laughs> David F. Sandberg was talking about Shazam maybe shooting next. Um, James Cameron had some stuff to say about Wonder Woman. Let's uh, let's swerve that entirely. Yeah, he really he really judged the public mood on that one, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whew. Uh but it's um let's let's focus on uh DC, the DCEU, Batman, the Joker, uh, and other related characters because God. Hang on, are there other related characters? Because I thought the impression I got was that the only <laughs> character only that Warner Brothers have the rights to is the Joker, <laughs> apparently. Right, okay. I, I I all of these are kind of intermingled, so I guess I'll tr- let's try and go through them one by one and kind of give our reactions and then like we'll move on to the thing that like came out next in the news or like the thing that builds into it and then go can I, oh, okay so that's how that fundamentally changes that thing can I can I before we get into any of this can I add a disclaimer right up at the start just in case from all the times we've talked about stuff like this on the podcast there are people who aren't aware of this right but because I'm aware that sometimes if you criticise things that DC and Warners are doing, the, the what the accusation that gets levelled at you is that oh you just don't like DC or oh you just want it to fail, right? The Joker, I love the Joker. Like when I was a kid, I had I got a trade paperback. It was probably around about the time the first Batman film came out of a book called The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told. And it was Joker stories from his original appearance going right the way through a load of ridiculous Silver Age stuff through to when he got reinvented in the 70s. And I think the latest story is maybe like early 80s in it. And I have always loved the Joker. He is absolutely one of my favourite comic book villains. So when I say anything about what I'm about to say in terms of whether or not doing films about the Joker is a good idea, this does not come from a position of, I think the Joker is rubbish and they shouldn't do films about him. I just want to get that out there. (laughs) Okay. 
That being said, <laughs> <laughs> Todd Phillips and Martin Scorsese. Uh, Todd Phillips, uh, the director, of course, uh, behind Road Trip. That's what we all know him from. That's the thing that he did. Did he do uh, Euro Trip as you, well? You joke, you you joke, but like he was being described as you know hangover director Todd Phillips. And when I went and looked at what else he'd done, I'm pretty sure Road Trip was like the one thing that he'd done that I was actually that familiar with. Well, he did. He did Jude Date. He did Jude Date, didn't he, with um, uh, Downey Jr. and Zach Galifianakis. And he did. Um, I'm not sure where he produced or directed Project X. Um, but it was. It's oh God, also he, like, he did the he did the Starsky and Hutch as well. Yes, uh, I have seen that. It wasn't really Starsky good. and Hutch is great. Starsky yeah, and Hutch is okay. really great. Um, and he also so he directed the the documentary Frat House in the late nineties as well, which is a really interesting uh, documentary that kind of led to the Project X, the kind of party style of movies. Anyway, um, uh, I'm, I'm just reminiscing about Road Trip now. The 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 post American Pie. Uh, you know, when when it seemed like every film was going to be like just an American Pie ripoff, and Road Trip yeah. was like the first one out of the gates. Oh, those were I, innocent th- times. Thirteen-year-old Joe loved Road Trip. <laughs> <laughs> really loved Road Trip. Um, I would say yeah. it was not as good as American Pie, but better than your Road Trip. <laughs> we're definitely burying the lead here. Um, by the way, uh, Todd Phillips also directed War Dogs more recently, which I've heard mediocre things about. So, Todd Phillips directing, Martin Scorsese producing, and it sounds very much like Todd, uh, Todd Phillips has gone to Martin Scorsese, said, uh, I've got this idea, and kind of if I can have your name attached, that would give me the clout to potentially get it made. Scorsese's gone, yeah, yeah okay, that sounds <laughs> yeah, whatever, interesting. Man. <laughs> and, and then Todd Phillips has gone to DC, and DC have gone, right, yeah, let's develop it. So <laughs> They've gone, the idea ooh, Martin is, Scorsese, sure. Hmm. Uh, a, an origin movie for the Joker following a younger version of the character uh, set in a kind of gritty 1980s Gotham City uh, and it would be a hard-boiled crime movie. It would not be part of the DCEU. It would be part of a new kind of side banner that has not yet been named by Warner Brothers. But the idea would be that these movies are kind of featuring characters that maybe do exist within the DCEU but are played by different actors and are kind of these one-off stories where you're just telling a story, which I guess has been it's in, comi- in comics. Yeah. But not even just Elseworlds, just like a, a story that j- just like anything, that, any, anything yeah. that takes place out of, out of continuity that someone, someone's got a take on a character. Incidentally, like The Killing fit. Joke, which when The Killing Joke was written was an out-of-continuity <clears throat> story and... Somewhere along the way, wires got crossed, and DC decided that it was in continuity. Well, but, but Alan Moore did not the, write that as an incontinuity story. The Brian Azzarello Joker comic that was recommended to me on the podcast last year. Yeah. This that this kind of this pitch reminded me a little bit of that, and obviously that's not a Joker origin. It's a Joker kind of uh, like it's just an out of continuity, hard boiled crime story with mm. the Joker at the center of it. Um. I would say that the interesting thing for me here is the idea of these out of continuity movies for DC, which is what mm-hmm. I think they should be doing. Like, yep. if you Would if agree. you want to have if you want if you have these interesting ideas but they don't fit in the DCEU, make them great, fantastic. Um, the the I I think the word that sours all of this is origin because yep. Joker <laughs> and origin aren't two words that readily go together, are they? No, they just don't. They just don't it's i mean 
the Joker has an origin. Let, 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 you know, let's be clear on this. It's not that the Joker doesn't have an origin at all. We all know that the Joker became the Joker when he fell into a vat of chemicals and it bleached his skin and dyed his hair and all of that. And in most versions, not all versions, we also know that when that happened, he was a criminal called the Red Hood and he was being chased by Batman and fell into those chemicals. Um, and, and, you know, the original origin story that, that reveals that is a silly but fun yarn. And the idea of the Joker, you know, kind of, I mean, it's, it's weird. I don't want to get in too much into the story in which it's presented, but actually the story in which it's presented is really bizarre because it spends the whole story. It picks up this thing of, oh, there was a mystery villain called the Red Hood 10 years ago and he disappeared and now it looks like he's reappeared. And at the very, very, very end of the story, it turns out that it was the Joker and that's it. Um, so it's a weird sort of it's not even like here is the joker's origin it was just here is a story about the red hood oh and by the way he was the joker all along um so you know there is an element of origin to him but it's just this thing of we don't need to know who he was beforehand and i think there are some characters who you don't know who they were beforehand and if you find it out kind of like they did with wolverine i don't james you may feel differently I don't think it actively harms the character too much to know who Wolverine was beforehand. Not least because he doesn't know necessarily. Like you know, he he's lost that memory. So the fact that we've happened to see it, <laughs> I mean, he I has don't got the think memory matters back now. too much. Well, <laughs> continuity. <laughs> Can I say something controversial? That it it doesn't. It doesn't hurt Jack Nicholson's Joker to find out who he was beforehand. I think it does, and I think we talked we talked about this on on the Batman eighty nine episode. To me, while I I love that performance and I love that character, but that character is not the Joker. That character is Jack Napier in yeah, Joker. Well, I mean, because okay, we yes, because we are introduced yes. to him as Jack Napier before we're introduced to him as the Joker. It's you know I mean okay so maybe if you do it a different way round it might feel different but it's just yeah that, that you know that character came through the Joker too strongly for it to really be the Joker. Yeah, well, I was going to say like the thing of the Joker is like Batman is a detective and the Joker is someone who defies detective work because he's unpredictable and if he hasn't, you can't figure him out yeah, if he has an origin and that suggests like there are things he wants. And, you know, personality traits you can look at. Like, anything that makes him predictable ruins the character. And mm. either I mean, you there's... have a complete separation of who he was before and after the vat of chemicals, in which case the origin doesn't matter, or yeah. you commit <laughs> to not telling the origin. And, uh, you know, I mean, but then there's an elephant in the room, which origin... is the Dark Knight, and um, I don't think that the Dark yeah. Knight should be held up as like an urtext for everything it's like you know it's not the only way to do batman but it did show that the joker is absolutely at his most effective when you can't figure him out and he is completely unfathomable um so why would you want to do something weaker than that you know it i i just think that it i think the word origin is the is the souring thing here because i think if you if they'd have announced like a joker that's a hard-boiled crime story in Gotham City in the 1980s. That in itself, not it's a not, bad idea. It's yeah, and and I and like, what if it's just the Joker at the start of his? And what and what if the origin idea is this kind of idea that you're throwing out, like the Dark Knight did? These multiple different origins, uh, yeah, these or, multiple or different ways of how this character came together. 
I mean, it could just be that he's the Red Hood for half of the film and we never see who he is under the mask, in which case, you know, who he was beforehand, in which case, you know, fine. I think as well, though, I mean, okay, I, ju- I just said, you know, okay, that that side of it's fine. Um, I don't think the Joker really fits that genre anyway. I mean, the whole point about the Joker is that he's a ridiculous clown supervillain. He's an escalation. And it's that classic thing of the Joker kind of only really exists because Batman exists. If you just put the Joker in opposition to ordinary people, I don't think he works. And so I, I'm not sure that, that putting the Joker in that genre... Now, I'm not saying it's a... It, like, I think doing the Joker's origin is a stupid and ridiculous idea that harms the character. I don't think putting the Joker in an 80s hardball crime movie is a stupid and ridiculous idea that ruins the character. I just don't think it's... If you've got that potential to do that with a Batman character, I'm not sure that he's the one to do it with. And I, I said this when writing it up for the site, but wouldn't you do it with Harvey Dent instead or someone like that? <laughs> you know, there, there are characters in Batman that far more fit the hard-boiled <clears throat> crime genre than the Joker does. I was going to say, like, the Joker like comes Batman. more from... The Joker comes more from that, like, uh, Dick Tracy pulp mm. genre, doesn't it? Like, it's not... He's not the 80s hard-boiled crime guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, he first appeared in, you know, 1940 or whenever it was, and, yeah, it was very much in, in that pulp tradition. I mean, most of Batman's villains first appeared around then. Um, but, you I know, like, I, I think I, there I like are the others idea, that though, transpose uh, better as, as a Scorsese character, you know. I like the idea more of a a closed-off thing for Batman. Like, I... I, I we we can mention this as well. So um, Matt Reeves was talking about his Batman trilogy and kind of let slip that it wasn't going to be part of the DC Extended Universe and everyone went... Whoa. He backtracked on that very quickly. Though. Yeah, trilogy. As, we, as we did on our Twitter account. Yes, it's going to be a trilogy. Um, <laughs> and, um, and basically he's backtracked and said, no, so basically what I was saying was that it's not going to have these crossovers. It's not going to be in service to these other films. It's not going to be setting up Justice League movies. It's going to be its own self-contained thing, and I did kind of like that because I thought I, I thought like, oh well, I mean, pretty nakedly, what you're trying to do here is do what Christopher Nolan did, but also I kind of always liked the idea of Batman existing in this Gotham city that feels like it doesn't. Gotham never feels like a real world thing to me. And again, so when I was reading this and seeing 1980s Gotham City, I was like, but Gotham City to me always seems to exist out of time. Like I, it. it it doesn't yeah, seem Gotham City is kind I was of thinking, like, the, what's, yeah. what's an 80s Gotham City? Is it like, is everyone walking around with Flock of Seagulls haircuts? Like, all, all, all I could think was um, in, in the 80s was when they made the Batmobile, like, just a car. It just looked like a, a black and blue 1980s car. <laughs> that, that's what 1980s Gotham is to me. <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of. I mean, we don't know whether this film is is even going to be made. And I would say that the Scorsese name on it is basically a way that because I mean it's it was said like in the pit in the deadline article for this. Oh, it's going to be more like Taxi Driver and King of Comedy than anything else. So it seems like that's why Scorsese's name is on it. Mm. Is to kind that of was the, sell I, this I did slightly idea. take issue with the report that said that it was going to be in the style of three films that are actually really different from one another, <laughs> even though they're the same director. <laughs> it's going to be like Raging Bull and King of Comedy. I mean, okay, they've both got Robert De Niro in, but apart from that... <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, like, you can you could look at King of Comedy and you could look at... And this is what, again, I, I said this on the site, but that clash of 
hiring a comedy director and uh, and a crime producer to do a, a crime film. That clash of styles and like king of comedy. If 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 someone said let's make a film about the Joker that's like king of comedy. And rather than saying, oh, it's going to be an 80s hard-boiled crime thing, you know, if you said, let's do a story where the Joker, about the Joker as like a media figure and the media developing a fascination with the Joker and it's going to be inspired by films like King of Comedy. Now, that is a take that I could see right there. But, um, you know, just, just, just going, oh, it's going to be like an 80s Scorsese film is a bit, yeah... It's this is the write-up from a trade. It's not necessarily exactly what the film is. It's kind of like, well, mm. we'll see. And I, I, I mean, it seems like something that I would bet more on getting made than not getting made based on the names attached and based on how they kind of release the news. It's and all of the following stuff Lito that we're going to get into. Currently not shitting part of the it. extended universe. <laughs> Yeah. Right, well so let's let's talk about all that then because like literally the very next day it was reported that a Joker and Harley Quinn spin-off movie was in development from directors Glenn Ficarra and John Requa. Um I think I pronounced that right. Um so they have in the past directed uh, Crazy Stupid Love, Focus, uh Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot. They did a bunch of episodes of This Is Us, which was one of the big uh new dramas on American TV last year. Um and that kind of affects a bunch of other films because we already knew that there was a Gotham City Sirens movie in development, which obviously would have focused, would have heavily featured Harley Quinn. That was in development. That was going to be Harley, Catwoman, Poison Ivy. It sounds like that that is still in development, but maybe has been pushed back behind this Joker and Harley movie. But then also the Suicide Squad 2, which could have featured presumably definitely Harley, maybe the Joker as well. And it sounds like that is the case, which is maybe now being fast tracked that possibly that is going to be the earliest of these three that we do see if we see one of them. But obviously now that film doesn't have David Ayer attached to it anymore. David Ayer is attached to Gotham City Sirens. And then it feels strange that these directors that they're bringing in for the Joker Harley movie who directed Focus, which was the Will Smith, Margot Robbie movie, would seem like a better fit potentially for Suicide Squad 2, if that's given that they were the kind of the two things that worked about Suicide Squad. But then, so you've got these three movies kind of all hanging out there, all of which would presumably star Harley Quinn, two of which would presumably star the Joker, and Jared Leto has chimed in kind of during this in the news cycle and said that he is very much committed to continuing to play the character of the Joker for the next 10 or 15 years. And that, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what he said. And um, and that, like, um, he um, expected to be a part of any movie that featured the Joker moving forward. Like, maybe not this, this spin-off one, but as, the, as far as the DCEU went, he was the Joker. I mean... He also, I thought it was quite amusing... Kind of was like there was so much nonsense that came on, came out around the release of Suicide Squad and about how method I was being and like that I was in the role ninety percent of the time and that that wasn't all true. It's like yeah, there was one dude saying that Jared Leto. There was one person <laughs> men- mentioning the used the used condoms and the dead rats being sent to people, and it was mostly you. <laughs> so I mean, how do I mean, you the- how do you look at that? interpretation of that character and think yes that's what we want to base our franchise around it's just 
I ju- it's but it didn't. It didn't feel like belief. that's what they were doing, though, did it? it no, really nobody. But it now like does. It's that's the thing. It's just how how have we had this shift? How have we had this shift post Wonder Woman, where we where they've gone? Um, let's take the film that we were gonna do that was gonna have a load of female characters in the lead and shove that behind another film with the Jared Leto Joker that everybody is, right? hates. Like everybody I, hates I get that Joker. I get the impression they're not actually. Like, there's no coherent plan for these films. What we have is a lot of warring producers who are all desperate to get Mm. theirs made. And, like, the fact that they released news about two Joker movies on two consecutive days, one after the other, suggests that there was no actual plan for that. It was just someone was like, oh, I got my Joker story into the press. And the other one was like, fuck, I need to get my Joker story into the press. Otherwise, it damages the chance of it actually getting made. Like That Joker Harley movie, to me... I mean, it it seems like it seems like a, something that you release because okay, we've been working with these people potentially pro- like um, developing this movie, which is Joker and Harley. Because I I I see why you would develop that idea post Suicide Squad because yeah, sure, that's like, that's what that's what you were setting up. And if it is the Sid and, if, the Sid and Nancy supervillain film, yeah, whatever. and if and if that isn't a part of the scripts that you are making for Suicide Squad or Gotham City Sirens, then yeah, sure, develop one simultaneously. But I, I do wonder, like you say, James, whether this movie kind of the news gets out there because A, you've got Jared Leto's agent on the phone going, what is this about this other Joker movie that's been made without <laughs> yeah, yeah, my exactly. client in it? And and simultaneously, like, someone going like, oh god, this Joker movie's got traction, what about our Joker movie? Like, it just seems like it should It should be the yeah, kind like, of news that you, this, that it you doesn't, get out there. It doesn't seem like a marketing strategy, it seems like politicking. Hmm. The, the only thing that, like, does seem mildly positive about that film is that um, the direct, the slated directors have actually made films that I liked, which um, <laughs> as well as, well, Crazy Stupid Love was quite good. I Love You, Philip Morris is a mm. great film. Yeah, I like that. and they and they wrote and directed that. Um, so again, it's sort of it's people with it's people with a comedy background because he wrote um, Bad Santa as well. Yeah, didn't he? Uh, yeah, so, that's that's right. Um, you know, that's not necessarily a a bad approach to bring to the Joker, but just oh, just why why the Jared Leto version? Yeah. Now I think that's something we can all definitely agree on. If they had. I mean, you never know. It could, it could be that they decide to kind of recast the Joker and kind of still pitch him as this, as the kind of idea of what they brought up in this anyway, of like a modern day uh, criminal kingpin I mean, kind of to... run, running lots of the underworld in Gotham, but just have a different actor play that character. I mean, to, I, to be fair to Jared Leto, recasting that Joker won't fix that character. It's, I mean, it's not just his performance. Like, just everything about that take is wrong. <laughs> and, and like, just no, sticking I, someone else under the makeup won't fix it. I think you could take the broad strokes of it, which is just, like I say, a Gotham kingpin who has this messed up relationship with Harley <clears> and re- <throat> recast him, redesign the character, um, Definitely don't having him have him laid in a carefully arranged <laughs> uh, floor of knives. Um, maybe get rid of some of the tattoos. I, I yeah, 
I mean, but the thing is, I just can't see any world in which we get a Joker origin movie, a Joker and Harley movie, a Gotham City Sirens movie, and Suicide Squad 2. I mean, Suicide Squad 2, I think you have to make because of the amount of money that the first one made. A studio that doesn't make a sequel to that film when they have, um, when they have Will Smith and they have, um, uh, Margot Robbie (laughs) playing those characters and they have, and they have that, that first movie making as much money as it, as it did. What are you doing? Um, I, I I wonder whether the Gotham City Sirens being pushed back is a way of maybe edging out David Ayer as well. <laughs> like, okay, the first movie made money, but kind of... Ins- I mean, I don't blame David Ayer entirely for Suicide Squad because I don't think for a minute that we saw anything resembling his cut of the movie. Uh, it sounds like what we saw was the cut of a uh, of a marketing company, essentially. The, the final cut, apparently, of that film was put together by the people who cut the trailer, the Comic-Con <laughs> trailer, which is insane. Um, so, yeah, but I do wonder whether it's maybe like, okay, David Ayer gets pushed to the back. We bring in, you know, maybe you move over the Gotham City Sirens. Maybe that would make sense for Glenn Ficarra and John, John Rico or whatever. I don't know. I just like, it feels like there is a lot of politicking and that it's made itself out public this week. Um, but yeah, it just, it just, it, again, it feels like DC is kind of in flux and I don't think they, they're going to know what they're doing until after Justice League lands, because if Justice League lands and does anything like mediocre money, then I don't think we see the Flash movie. Um, I, d- I don't think we see the Cyborg movie. I, I basically, um, I, I think if that happens, I think they just cut Wonder Woman loose and they, they'll press on with Wonder Woman too. And have her have little to no connection to the other stuff. Uh, well, that would be the oh. sensible thing to do. So that's probably not what they'd do. Um, but, but yeah. I mean, it, it feels it feels like if that movie tanks, like how how confident are you that we'll see more Ben Affleck and Henry Cavill, for example? I don't know. I think you could, but individually, I think if that film tanks, it's the end of the shared universe, um, and they might still do new films with the same actors and versions of the characters. Yeah, but it won't be but, a Marvel-style, like, metaverse. Yeah. It would just be occasional cameos do, or anything. If they, yeah, if, if they do cross over, it's because, but, yeah. Yeah. Whew, uh, yeah, and as I said, I think Just Justice League Dark apparently has been pushed way back. Um, and <laughs> that movie's not happening. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not, that's definitely that not That's definitely on the list, um, yeah. And Shazam is apparently going to be the next movie to shoot after Aquaman. Um, weirdly, we st- like we still haven't heard who will be playing Shazam, <laughs> but there will be an actor playing him, and David F. Sandberg will be directing. And so, yeah, look forward to that one. And definitely no Rock, even though he has been cast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's all of the DC stuff, and I think we should just move on from there, shouldn't we? <laughs> Probably for the sake of our own sanity, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I think we'll, what we'll do now is we'll move on to our main discussion, which this week is of uh, Sin City, Robert Rodriguez, and Frank Miller's 2005 film, Sin City. Uh, but before any of that, we'll take a quick break and listen to the trailer for the movie. This episode of Cinematic Universe is brought to you by our backers on Patreon, 
if you head on over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe uh, you will see that we have revised our rewards and tiers system on there and one of the changes we have made is that if you back us at the $20 level we will plug something of your choice in this special section here the this episode is brought to you by slot so if you have a look, think is there anything you would like us to promote on a future episode, then you can throw some cash our way via Patreon. And this is the point in the podcast where we will tell all of our listeners that this episode is brought to you by you. Okay, so that was the trailer for Sin City, um, as I mentioned before, directed by uh, d- uh, by Robert Rodriguez. Um, <laughs> Frank Miller also <laughs> co-directed the film. I think this was almost like a directorial apprenticeship that Frank Miller <laughs> underwent here. And also, special guest director, Quentin Tarantino. Um, I'm not sure which bit Tarantino Oh, did. I do. Maybe it was... Uh... Uh, it's the scene in the car. Yeah, um, I was going to say with, it's in the car. Uh, isn't it? Clive Owen and um, uh, Benicio del Toro. Okay, right, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and uh, you guys, this movie looks great. It does. I mean, it is a. <laughs> it, it, it cannot be denied that it is a massively stylish movie. I just, although I, just I do wanna... think it's there is issues in the consistency of how it applies it, but we'll we'll get to that before. Um, I, before on, we sorry, get James. to. Before we get too deep into that, I just want to say how it's interesting that uh, Robert Rodriguez resigned from the Directors Guild so that Frank Miller could be co-credited on this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's very interesting if you listen to some of the conversations that went on um, behind the scenes of this movie, how it was developed. Because basically, I think Robert Rodriguez was a fan of Sin City and knew that Frank Miller was kind of sceptical to have his work um, adapted because it his um, relationship with kind of movie people before this hadn't been fantastic. And he's famously <laughs> pretty crotchety, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Robert Rodriguez went away and basically 
did a proof of concept for how he would shoot Sin City. So the kind of the visual style that we see here. Um, and I think that was, I think that was some of the like intro and outro stuff, the, the Josh Hartnitty bits or make, no. So I think to begin with, it was just kind of like individual shots that kind of realized. I think it was the, he did Miller's the, the, comics. the whole, yeah. And the, well, in, maybe initially that, but they did definitely do the, the Josh Hartnett scene from the start. Yeah. So that's, was that's definitely the, that's done the, as a self-contained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's the kind of the second phase. So he went yeah. off and kind of realized these individual images, showed it to Frank Miller, and Frank Miller apparently originally thought that he was looking at stills from his comic, and then they started moving, and he was like, "Oh, okay, that's interesting." And so Rodriguez says, "Look, if I then film an actual thing with actors, um, would you be interested in seeing that?" And obviously, then we can we can go and try and sell this movie. We can try and get the financing and get it made. So he films the bit with um josh hartnett that kind of bookends the movie and um marley shelton um so they filmed that bit and frank miller comes to set for that and starts talking to the actors and kind of gets a little bit interested in being slightly more involved than he was going to be and rodriguez goes sure okay uh co-direct this movie with me um which is what ended up happening and i and i as i say i think Rodriguez was certainly the driving force behind the realization of the visual style. Obviously, he's taken a lot of the visual style to begin with from Miller's books. Yeah, I mean, this is a um, good good example for anyone who thinks like, is it possible to direct a movie in a way that makes it look exactly like the comic? And it is because that's what Sin City is. And whether that means it is improved as a movie or not is debatable. But that's what they did, like basically panel for panel i mean yes, even I, think, it... I was just saying, i think i think even robert rodriguez said he wouldn't consider the film an adaptation it's mm. a translation to a different medium it hasn't really been i mean it has been adapted there are there are obviously some slight structural changes but it is essentially it's it's slapping up the comic there on the screen more so than like any other film that's ever been made of a comic yeah, Rodriguez said essentially what he did was he took the frames, he shot what Miller had drawn in the comics, and then the only times that there were shots that hadn't been drawn originally by Miller were just him kind of as an editor going, we kind of need an insert there to get from this shot to this shot that you did that you don't have in the comic. And and, and you have to say like if that, there's that's a what he did. if if there's a comics artist you're going to do that with, Frank Miller's a pretty good choice because He's very much an acquired taste in terms of his art style and particularly his character style. And there are definitely those who would argue that like how he draws people has only got progressively worse like, <laughs> since the 1980s. But one thing he has always known how to do, irrespective of what his people actually look like when he draws them, the man knows how to frame a shot. And so mm -hmm. if you're going to use a comic as a storyboard and you're going to replace the actual drawings with actual people, then it's a pretty good template to go on. And you can see why this film... It's like, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Frank Miller's work. I do really like some of his stuff and not really like some of his other stuff. Um, but, you know, this is a fantastic looking film because it has taken those compositions and put them up on screen really well and, and you know, done it in a really stylish way. Yeah, Rodriguez was talking about sometimes that Miller would come up to him on set and say like, oh, what about if for this shot we do like a silhouette or we do this or that? And Rodriguez kept turning around to him and going, yeah, but like, Frank, take a look at the what you drew in the <laughs> first place. 
do you really think your idea that you just have is better than actually what you drew the first time around? And Miller was going, yeah, okay, fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll just do, we'll just do that then. Um, he needs someone like that for his comics career. It's fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's, it's a fascinating method of making this movie. And at the time it was, it was, you know, it was a, it was a big hit financially. Um, Made 160 mil at the US box office of a 40 million dollar budget. It was critically well received, and I'm looking back. You do have to wonder whether the critical reception is so strong because of the technical achievement. So, like you know, it screened at Cannes and it won a technical grand prize at Cannes, and you wonder whether that that kind of that kind of the overwhelming aesthetic of this movie is what made people go, oh, yeah, Sin City mm. is a good movie. Because I, I don't think I don't think I could make a compelling argument for it here right now as a good movie. <laughs> but, it, it, but it is striking, even looking back, this is 12 years on. Um, there aren't many films that have that have been able to recreate this kind of thing and maybe that's because you kind of had this perfect mix of source material and um and director but you know the only things that come close i made the joke about um zach snyder at the start of the movie obviously snyder was hired to do this kind of thing a second time around with 300 and i would say maybe 300 is a better movie but not as visually exciting as this uh but i mean we'll probably get to 300 in a future future (laughs) podcast but yeah there's not it doesn't really feel like anyone has gone and taken this style and, and, you know, taken it any further or developed it more. It just feels like this was something incredible that Rodriguez achieved and it was just perfect for this movie. I mean, I think um, one, just, one interesting just, thing... Sorry, go on. Yeah, one interesting thing about this technique is, like, I think this is one of the first films that were shot mostly green screen and then... Like its direct successor yeah. was probably Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, which we believe was fully green screen. And it was, it's like yeah, that, that yeah. as a technique has become basically the norm now. Like you look at films like well, Avengers, yeah, yeah, when they're when they're you know, if the B roll comes out or something and it's like they weren't actually in an airport, they were in a car park with a big sheet of green behind mm. them or whatever. And like this feels like that's where the impact has been. From Sin City is Maybe Im- then improving the, the, the sets on or their crack to be. The what or this or the maybe proof of concepts here then as a movie as a whole is proving that CGI can be realized on this big of a scale. Because it's not like CGI didn't exist before and it's not like there weren't holy CGI scenes, but I think that just never never kind of on, on this level. Because I think yeah. there was maybe like three sets in this entire movie. The bar is real, and I I know mm. that the bar is definitely uh, a real set, but like you know, when you when you're seeing someone, gen- I mean, almost any time you see a character outside in this movie, that's just one hundred percent green screen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a point I wanted to make just on the when you were talking about the critical reception that it got, and I think you're saying about it got a good reception at, at Cannes is quite interesting because I think this is even though it is based on a comic and is very comicy in the look and feel, I think it is also going to appeal to people with a quite romantic sense of old movies because it's so drawn from you know 
like it, the the characters and especially the dialogue and the horrendous unrealism of a lot of the dialogue <laughs> is so kind of you know 1940s 50s movies and it's i mean it's, I, it's I, I, I actually it's classic yeah film. well i kind of shied away from saying film noir because i think that it has so many of the trappings of noir i don't think it's actually a noir because of the, what well, the actual it, stories and characters are about it doesn't so it's it, a it's a neo-noir that's what it is, is it, yeah that's, it, it, it is a ne- you... it, it, it's it's a neo-noir but it's doesn't quite it feels like it really wants to be a film noir but it, it doesn't have the, the you, story just, to go just with for it someone who is um, massively ignorant about what constitutes film noir can you explain how sin city is not film we noir? We, i i feel like the problem with film noir is that it's such a loose definition and people have their own interpretations of it and some people say it's not a genre at all for me the reason why it doesn't feel noir enough to me is that um, in all three instances, like the main story instances, the lead heroes are... T- I mean, okay, they are all people who, who kill and sort of, you know, there is moral ambiguity there. But for me, and it's not it's not necessarily going to be the case for everybody and how everyone would define it, but for a noir to truly be noir, I feel like the lead character should not necessarily be in the right completely. And... You know, for me, the best the, the best noir plots are ones where it's a character has got caught up in something and makes a bad decision, and everything gets worse from there. In this, you have three rock solid. You know, one of them's a cop. Um, you know, this sort of, and it's just they are they're hard boiled, and and it's crime fiction, and it's and it's to an extent sort of got some of the tradition of the, the kind of Chandler detective fiction, um, and certainly it's got the style of a noir. But for me, it doesn't have the moral murkiness. Even though there is a lot of killing going on, I think I think it is. I think the morality of the three main characters is actually comes off as quite black and white, and they are unambiguously each the heroes of the three stories. <laughs> I mean, I think and noir doesn't really have. Heroes I think that's debatable in Marv's case, but otherwise, yeah. It is. It is though. It is such a nebulous term. That's the the problem. Is mm. I mean, so your, your your classic your classic era noirs are, are kind of your Raymond Chandler novels. I mean, my favourite kind of um, kind of forties noir is Double Indemnity. Well, I was going to say, I mean, Double Indemnity is the gold standard. And I think I yeah. think it's because of Double Indemnity that I feel like if the character is too good, then uh, it's not a noir, and that's because it's not it's moving away from the double indemnity style. I mean, it tends, it tends to be, I mean, like, so you think of like more, so the, the, the actual neo-noirs, then stuff like Blade Runner, which again, yeah, I mean, Deckard, if, if, if you've watched Blade Runner, Deckard's the villain, you guys, um, you, you do, um, <laughs> all right no i mean some... i mean okay the hero thing is it's it's not necessarily the best way to define it because there's so not... many other kind I mean, of like, things uh, and tropes yeah, drive that, drive know. the winding reffin film is, is probably a, a neo-noir movie uh chinatown even something like um who framed roger rabbit is a film mm. that's playing with the noir trappings and i i also the... big big lebowski is in terms of the plot big lebowski is a hundred percent a noir plot completely but so it's a, but the, the, the kind of the, the trappings tend to be you're dealing with a character that your protagonist is normally doing some kind of investigating or is having mm-hmm. kind of like a, a, a drive through the film he's um he's kind of playing around with some kind of cd underbelly of the city that they're in that's that's the one thing i feel about sin city that that 
doesn't ring true to me as a noir. It's, it doesn't feel like there is any kind of good version of this. <laughs> I was going to say that's, that that's sort of the, the top, point. It feels like <laughs> is that since yeah, he is yeah. the entire world, yeah. the entire world is underbelly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's kind of there'll always be, and I get it. It's definitely a key sort of uh, a genre element is the idea of kind of corrupt police and that kind of thing. But the problem with Sin City again, yeah, it's that thing that everyone is corrupt. So it's like there's just one guy who's not, and and part of you know, a, a lot of the time, uh, film noir's endings or just their plots generally are really pessimistic, and usually things don't work out for the people involved. But there is always an element well, of. There's somebody there to to punish the the bad doers. It's just that usually the people who are the characters that you're following end up either being or being interpreted as the bad. And I think again the Marv one, which I do think is the most successful plot, does have that thing of you know at the end he is he is caught and executed for these crimes, even though you know he didn't commit half of them. But yeah, I think that the film really lacks an overarching someone to catch them, like an overall authority. Um, and as you know, because it, it is just basically there's just lots of bad sides all competing with one another, and it's just basically you'll get killed eventually. It's, I mean, you know that, and that does have the that that does fulfil the pessimistic side of things, <laughs> but it doesn't really work if there's never a sense that the character might escape. Usually in a film noir, they won't escape their fate at the end, but they'll spend most of it thinking that they can. And in this, with the exception of Dwight, nobody does, and nobody ever really has a chance of escaping their fate in it. So, I mean, this is all splitting hairs. You, I, I, I wouldn't yeah, I try mean, and argue like too said, strongly is... with someone who said that this is a noir film, but yeah, I think it is. I think it is because the term is so nebulous. But mm. it just for me, it's. It, I would just say it's a it's a less interesting example because for me yeah, noir definitely. is yeah. mostly about it's it's mostly about tone and this definitely strikes the tone and it's and it's parodying well parodying homaging all of the, the certainly the original noir tropes but transmitting it into kind of not a modern setting so much as like a modern attitude I guess like mm. the. I mean, the story feels like it's it's taking place in a throwback to these kind of like forties noirs, but also the the kind of the tone of the stories and the 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 level of the violence and the absurdity of the violence and the kind of the rules of the universe that you know, like if you're a hero, you can be killed eight times before you die, whereas a villain will die with <laughs> one kind of slash to the neck. Yeah. Well, not even a villain, just an irrelevant character. The villains probably get three <laughs> lives, the heroes get eight, and everyone else gets one. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, so for me, it is definitively a noir, just not a very interesting one story-wise. So I do kind I think, of want to I think that's can I say why I didn't want to the... think of it as one, because I think that... I think that a key, the most key element of a noir is to have a really interesting story, and and this doesn't. I mean, so I want, that's. I want I'm, to, I'm, I'm judging it. I'm, I'm excluding it on a qualitative basis. I want to say something as well about the creation of the Sin City comics that uh, Frank Miller specifically said when he came up with Sin City. Like, obviously, he was inspired by noir movies, but also he said he wanted it to specifically be. Um, like out of balance in that everyone was corrupt and specifically it was a reaction to the comics code 
in the the comics code had this thing saying like in order for you to sell yeah (laughs) in order for you to sell these comics in your shop like good must triumph and evil must be punished and frank Mm. miller's as part of like the 80s sort of wave of comics creators making adult comics for adults that was something he was specifically doing was coming up with a world where good was not necessarily in the majority and not you know triumphant although evil does get punished in all of these it's just that good gets punished as well (laughs) yeah it's more incidental in that everyone gets punished yeah yeah um so going back to the comics what i was really interested about because obviously i i can watch this movie and, and look at these visuals and see what rodriguez was able to create um and so I think the thing that's, that that stands out that yes okay so he's he's managed to figure out these ways to shoot the film where it's kind of it all looks monochrome and then he's able to build the world behind the actors to fit that color scheme and then adding in these splashes of color from time to time. So is the splashes of color something that the comics did? Yes, but not in every comic. It's right, bro- and, and, and a bit. So I mean, because the obvious example that the, the kind of the, the key text in terms of film, in, in terms of cinema, is Schindler's List. I would say that that when you do get that <laughs> one splash of color in Schindler's List, that kind of is like this mind blowing, emotional like. And and the film, you know, that's it's a masterpiece. By the time that that splash of color arrives, it's so jarring, um, and it has such a profound effect. Um, here, I, I, I couldn't quite understand the point of it beyond it looked cool from time to time so, mean, and again if that's if that's I your proof of concept has, yeah. if that's I your proof of concept in the first sequence that you you know you've got the red lipstick and the red dress and then she gets shot but there's no blood because the the, the red's there already i i thought that was quite effective like it in in terms of a in a visual sense, but then I did wonder the further we got into it, I was like, okay, so why is that that colour and why is that not that colour now? And then why is- Yeah, I was going to say that because the, the, there's, there's two ways that I don't like how it's used. And one of them, and I assume it is a deliberate thing, but when they're in the bar, um, it goes into colour both times that you see Nancy and Nancy is dancing and people are watching her. People's faces go from black and white into colour. And I'm not really sure. I guess it's to sort of emphasise the effect that she's having on people. I was going to say, it, yeah, that's it, that seems fairly self-evident to me, to be honest. Like, the... but it, it, but it's because it's the only time it feels really jarring. There, the other thing that I didn't like was I really like, and maybe this is my squeamishness, but I really like the the white thing for the blood. I think that's really well done and enables them to be utterly ridiculous with the way that they do the kind of blood and wounding and <laughs> mm. stuff. But then there are occasions when blood is red, and yeah. and, and it's not even stylized red. If it was like a really bright red that looked like ink, then then that would kind of still work. But it just looks like blood in some instances. Now, initially, I thought it was that they were just doing it on Marv's face. And again, if that was a specific thing for that character, because usually whenever they use the color, it's for a specific character for a specific reason. So if it was just the case that you see all of Marv's when Marv's being beaten up and bloodied and stuff, you see it on him. Fair enough. But there's other examples where people get slashed at or killed or whatever, and like you. Usually it's blood splattering on somebody else when somebody's being killed and it's red rather than 
why I was going to say and that to me is jarring because that seems to break the internal rules of blood is white when you see somebody being killed I'd have to check the comics but I'm pretty sure that the red blood thing is just a cinematic like the white doesn't work in this context so we're just going to have to use like a deep red I think that's what's going on there Mm. because I know the spot colours you're right are associated with specific characters in the comics and I'm fairly sure mm. it's, it's never used for, like, generic blood. It's only, like... I mean, this is the sequel that we'll get to one day, but, like, the woman in the red dress is always in a red dress, whereas everyone else is black and white. Or, like, Goldie has yellow hair or whatever. It's like... Mm. You know, although, I mean, that, that, I'm not stuff, sure Goldie yeah. has yellow hair right, in, yeah. the, in the comic, but... <laughs> yeah. Is, is that yellow bastard yellow in the comic? Yes. I would assume that would be one of the worst <laughs> messages to is there any point to that story in the comic? I mean, again, I why is he yellow? I just wondered because there isn't uh, here. So. I think, okay, I, with the caveat that I haven't read the comics in probably close to 10 years now, I think there's a line about him because, like, obviously he gets all fucked up and uh, brought hmm. back from the brink of death. I think it's jaundice. I think he's got a severe form of jaundice. I know, I ju- to be honest, I didn't mean is there any point to him being yellow. I just meant is there any point to... I'm just making a comment on how I think that's the that's not a very good story. <laughs> I mean, the the reason he's yellow is it just, just doesn't uh, really go anywhere. <laughs> it's just because he's like monstrous. That's why. Like just a, yeah, I it's like just I know how putrid from a stylistic point of view, I can see why he's a horrible yellow goblin thing. He, him being that makes more sense than um, Elijah Wood being um, super powered. <laughs> is he? Uh, I, I mean. We're getting into the the part of this movie where I just I I don't really care. So like he's talking about oh, why is he yellow? I kind of like oh I didn't really get why he was yellow, but I didn't really care why he was. And like uh, what's Elijah Wood's deal? I guess he eats people. Why I don't know, but I don't I don't really care. Like the the the, the thing about this film is that it's just. It's just so grim and unrelenting, and I think that some of the performances, um, I think Willis in particular for me, I'm not sure that this is a Bruce Willis sleepwalking through a part, but it it comes I it, it comes it comes <laughs> it comes close enough for me to go like I mean I, I just like when he, I think when he's I, feel, I feel his like voiceover I'm just I'm just not. I, I feel I like he cares less. in the first bit. I think that little first bit is pretty good, yeah. and and I, and I actually I watched that thinking, oh, Bruce Willis actually seems like he cares here. That's nice because that doesn't always happen. But yeah, by the time I got to the second half of that story, I just did not give a shit about it. Especially because just the whole plot thing with Nancy is just appalling. Anyway, well, all um, of the all of the plots are basically well, so. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it does should... struggle with the, well, hang on, the hang on. Before we, before we get to that, we should, should we, I should make we a describe point about... the stories as well? Can, we, can I Go just on. make a point about Bruce Willis? The thing I think about Bruce Willis is I don't think he was necessarily like sleepwalking through the part. I do think he needed better direction because there are like he gives all these line readings where the emphasis is completely off. And it's like, <laughs> I feel like maybe Robert Rodriguez was like, fuck, that's Bruce Willis. Like, have you ever seen uh, when... Frank, uh, Frank Miller, I can tell you from listening to a bit of the commentary, Frank Miller definitely was. He said, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe we've got the modern day Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's an interesting 
description of Bruce Willis. <laughs> and he talks about being intimidated to kind of walk up and give direction to Mickey Rourke and stuff, which is why I say yeah. I talk about this feeling like a mm. like an apprenticeship for Miller. Like it feels like Rodriguez is directing the movie and and Miller saying, "Oh, should we do?" And, and Rodriguez going, "No, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, you do that thing. Do you, go do that thing. That'll that'll give me a second. If and you now, go and do now that. take everything you've learned and go and make the <laughs> the spirit, the spirit, yeah." Um, I do think we should probably talk through kind of each of the stories in this film, though, especially for anyone who hasn't seen it, or to remind people because it's been a while. So there are there are four stories um, that are kind of chopped up. So the first story is called "The Customer Is Always Right," and that is kind of like the a very uh, a very like a, a short scene at the start and the end of the movie, both featuring Josh Hartnett's character. Josh Hartnett's kind of this gentleman assassin. Um, the salesman the film Mm. Uh, yes Um, and then there is the yellow bastard which is split into two parts that is the Bruce Willis story uh, the Bruce Willis narrated story that split um, both parts come like at the book ends of the movie after the after the assassin parts Uh, then there is the hard goodbye which is the Mickey Rourke part of the story which takes up kind of the first half of the middle of the film and the big fat kill which is the clive owen driven part uh which is the uh, again like the big the bigger story in the middle um and then yeah you get back to the end and you close off the first two stories um yeah i kind of felt like in, in terms of like maybe the movie that i wanted to see more of was actually the josh hartnett film not particularly that character and doing that but just kind of something a little bit more along those lines that that for me feels closer to noir in the terms that you were talking about mm. Seb in that you've got you've got an assassin here who is kind of like so the assassin in the first in the first half of that story is hired by a woman to kill her herself essentially yeah. she she knows that a yeah that a it's a nice little coming thing after her that. yeah yeah and and so he kind of kills her she knows what's coming she knows that he's going to do it in kind of like a in a nicer way than if she was killed by the mobster, and and so you've got this morally conflicted central character who is an assassin, but kind of being an assassin it um in in more interesting ways than just going after someone and, and killing them. Um, <laughs> and I and I almost feel like if they'd released if they'd released that short or like maybe like that pushed out to like ten or twenty minutes with that character that you kind of don't need the rest of the stuff. Like you've got, you've got the visual idea. You've, you've spent some time in this, in this gritty city that is not quite as depressing as the stuff that's in the other three stories. And for me, doesn't have some of the massively problematic elements that (laughs) permeate all of the rest of it. They're they're still here a little bit, but um, for me, and we can get into this kind of story by story. For me, this is a film that is as misogynistic as you can get. Um, the female characters are there to be ogled or to be tortured in interesting ways or to be saved by the male protagonists. And the male protagonists, because this is a throwback to like the real men of like Humphrey Bogart and that kind of, and, and, you know, the, and the Billy Wilder heroes that these are like, 
the real men and they're not perfect but you know they're out there doing what they need to do and they you know if they need to kill the bad guys they'll kill them and like there feels like some. There feels like a streak of toxic masculinity running mm. through this movie. You know, like all of the female characters are strippers or prostitutes or like, except for the one <laughs> or naked. who has a professional job, uh, and she's she's a yeah introduced naked and B gets her head chopped off. So um, yeah, the like literally the only one who isn't a prostitute or a, or a stripper. Uh, is so Carlos we're to, we're to, yeah, well, Carla Gugino, who is... Who, who is the lesbian um, <laughs> parole officer. God knows why she's a lesbian, because with a body like that, she could have any man she... <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> not even, like, sorry, not, not lesbian, not lesbian, dyke. And, yeah. and yeah, so she, she is, she's paraded around shirtless for the, the first kind of five minutes on screen. She then disappears. When she's turned back up, she's been kidnapped... She's been forced to watch Elijah Wood eat her hand from her wrist. And then after Mickey Rourke saves her, a corrupt cop turns up and guns her. Oh, yeah, that's right. She, she doesn't get her head chopped off. She gets repeatedly, she not only machine gunned, but then machine gun, her corpse gets machine gunned after she's already dead as well, just to make sure. Yeah. yeah, and the thing—the thing about it is—I mean, you, I mean you, 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 looked, you, you look down the cast list here, and all of all of the female characters, pretty much apart from Brittany Murphy, are prostitutes or strippers. And then Brittany Murphy's character is a character who exists to be beaten up with, to be beaten up by her ex-boyfriend, only for her boyfriend to then go off and continue his former love affair with one of with the head prostitute basically mm. I, I feel like the, the thing about it is i mean you I, I i agree with you that uh you know in terms of in terms of pretty much everything it d- does i don't think you can argue against the idea that there is a misogynistic streak running through this film but what interests me is that i don't th- i think they think it's being the opposite I think they think that all you need to do is because because the prostitutes all have guns and control their territory and get to kill people and stuff. I think it thinks it's being like kick-ass, strong female character type stuff. And I think as well, I think because if you look at some of the people who are in the cast, you've got people like Rosario Dawson and Brittany Murphy and Carla Gugino, and these are kind of these are actresses who. Like, I, I I could see someone making a film with these people and thinking, well, look, if there was anything wrong with this, these aren't the people who would just say any old shit that we give them. Like, they would have something <laughs> to say about it. They're pretty, you know, kind of strong-minded people. Like, you know, if, if there was anything wrong with this, surely Rosario Dawson is the kind of person who'd call us out on it. But she's perfectly happy to play this part and deliver these lines and stuff. So it can't be bad, can it? I feel like that's maybe their attitude to it because you do look at this and you think, well, how did all of this cast agree to do this? <laughs> I mean, but, for me, like, um... <laughs> while I agree that if you do any kind of feminist reading of it, like, it's fucking abhorrent, like... Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. It's so stylized on every level that I just can't bring myself to criticize it for that because it's like... It's like they watched all those noir films and went, oh, films need to be more like that. Let's just do that, but more so. And it's like, it's I basically think, Frank I, Miller's yeah. like, personal wank fantasy. And fair enough. Like, if that's what gets him off, okay. There, well, is, there so- is that, and it is sort of doing that in tradition. But I think what, to me, sums it up the most is that Frank Miller himself is in this film playing a quite small part as a priest. And he makes sure that amid the small amount of dialogue that he gets, he gets to say the word slut. And it's like, I know that in every instance that those that slurs like that are being thrown around in this film, again, it's that thing of, yeah, but it's the bad guys saying it. And it's like, yeah, but there's st- it's like when Quentin Tarantino uses the N-word. It's like, oh, yeah, but it's the, it's the bad guys who are being racist. It's not me. And it's like, yeah, that would be okay if you didn't seem to take such joy in the in <laughs> yeah. people saying it and the way that they say it. Just because they're the baddies, you can still be glorifying the baddies saying this stuff. And there is a definite sense in the way that it's scripted that there is an enjoyment in throwing around these words because well, they the feel thing is, like, like they that's because that's because Robert Rodriguez as well has that exploitation background, isn't it? Like, so that's mm. that's what he's into. Like again, I think there's these a, these are two off... guys who made a film of stuff they think is cool for themselves, and like it just you can criticize it, but it was never going to be any better than it was. Like, there's no there's, there's no version of this story as well with. Yeah, go on. Sorry, it's a very odd moment in the middle with Marv, where so so he's his story is basically he's driven by avenging the death of Goldie, who was a woman that he was having a love affair with, the kind of the first woman that had given him the time of day. She's then murdered by Elijah Wood, except oh well, I I mean I guess like it's strange because it's all tied up in this like uh conspiracy theory with like higher ups and that they they're trying to frame Marv but at the same time like Elijah Wood's the one who turns up to do the killing and he's eating all his other victims but he leaves Goldie behind um I guess to frame Marv but anyway so so then Marv is kind of on that track and takes a lot of punishment throughout like that's that's almost like the joke of Marv's story is that he like just at every turn will be like hit by a car three times and then stand up and carry on with his adventure or he'll be shot repeatedly <laughs> and then electrocuted smacked about yeah and then and then we'll just like get up and keep going um but so he gets captured by the um the gang of hookers led by Rosario Dawson and by Goldie's identical twin sister Wendy 
who kind of beat the crap out of him and he makes a point of like oh I don't hit women and like that's one of the most abhorrent things to him is that like who would hit abroad mm. um, <laughs> and then like at the key moment Wendy turns up and wants to kill Elijah Wood herself and rather than him turning around and going uh, do you know what like I'm going to do some more horrible stuff to this guy than you would want to so if you could just go and wait back in the car and give me half an hour because this is going to get pretty nasty and you're not going to watch this. He turns around and knocks her out cold and drags her back to the car. And you're like, okay, well, wasn't that, wasn't that your golden rule? Yeah, and but like, I mean, just, that, that, like, that feels to me indicative of the whole kind of like the, the attitude towards women in this film. Like, oh, like, but if we do need to shut you up quickly, here's a cold cock. Yeah, quite. I mean, like, that's the point of Marv, though, is that he is like, he's got no code because he's not like mentally sound like i think maybe that's more clear if you read the other books but like he he tells himself things that aren't true Mm. so like he you know he sees himself as the good guy but then what he's actually doing is like torturing and murdering a bunch of people Mm. i i I think i mean in in every sense, in terms of like from writing to performance and and visualization, I think Marv is by far the most successful thing about the film. Oh, I sure, think Mickey yeah. Rourke is great. I've I do I find that character really interesting. I so I don't know if I necessarily like him, but you know that that thirty or forty minutes or however long it is that that segment is, the story is not especially interesting. But I enjoyed watching that happened to him and, and, and that unfolding with him and his narration and everything like, you know, for all of the problematic elements of it and how it plays out, um, that, that was the part of the film where I was like, okay, this is, this is good. And, and you know, that, that character. Well, it's because, it's because Marv is like, he's a funny character in his construction mm. and it works on that level. And that distracts you from how like awful everything else around him is. Because like on a, he's, on a he's, he's, he's kind of he's kind funny. of like Ben Grimm. He's, he's, <laughs> he's like if Ben Grimm was mentally ill. <laughs> I would say that for me, why that section is most successful is Mickey Rourke's narration because I certainly feel like it. The, the three stories that are driven by the narration: you've got Bruce Willis, you've got Mickey Rourke, and you've got Clive Owen. Clive Owen is grappling with an accent the <laughs> yeah, entire time. Very much so. Which, which really, really holds that section back. Um, it's not the Bruce, only thing Bruce that Willis, holds that section back. Bruce Willis yeah. feels at least... I would say that that was the bit that for me felt like he was sleepwalking through was the narration. It felt like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do this, but then when do I get to turn up on set? Whereas Rourke seemed to be really selling the voiceover. And that mm. was... And, and, and that was... I mean... That was where I think it, it felt the most like it was nailing the film noir tone was because you had a compelling narrator who mm. it didn't matter what he was doing on screen almost. I was with him because of that narration. Um, to go back to those, some of the stuff that I found problematic about this film and I don't want to like, I don't want to tar anyone involved with this film specifically with this brush because it's uh, it's a horrible <laughs> thing that I think the movie does but I I think there is a very uh, dark pedophilic streak running through this film and 
it starts with Nancy, who is introduced as an 11-year-old girl. And in the first part is an 11-year-old girl who Hartigan is saving from rape. We then see her as an adult before the story, and as, as stripper Jessica Alba, before the film flashes back to showing her as an 11-year-old girl again. So kind of she exists in these two states simultaneously throughout the film. And then in the final part of the movie, that relationship between Willis and Alba, immediately as they lock eyes on each other, Nancy runs up and kisses him on the mouth. And from that mo- from that moment forward, Willis refers to how she's the love of his life and how he loves her. And it is and it is objectively a romantic relationship with nothing mm-hmm. in between. They've not seen each other in between. So she's gone from an eleven year old to this very sexualized adult. And the other thing is, I just think the entire conception of the Alexis Bledel character and the way she's depicted on screen, Alexis Bledel is a very young, you know, she's, she still looks about 15 and she's, and she's 35 now. Um, she was very young then. And she is, uh, she is the one who's kind of ogled for one whole scene where she's trapped down an alleyway. And that entire scene has this very dark overtone to me. Whereas I don't know if the character is supposed to be underage. She's certainly talking about calling her mother quite regularly in the in in the film. And it just it's something that sat wrong with me the whole way throughout this movie. And I couldn't shake the fact that this was something that I couldn't quite believe I was seeing in a movie that had been this big in the mid two thousands. And I don't know whether you guys would agree with me on that, but it's certainly the read that I came away from the movie with. I mean, there's a, it's kind of complex, isn't it? Because in the world of Sim City, Sim City, <laughs> in the world of Sin City, <laughs> all the, I'm surprised I didn't make that joke earlier, actually. Um, all the character, like all the female characters are, as you say, strippers or prostitutes. So it's like, there's no way of getting around the fact that even though, Hartigan saving like you know an innocent girl that's where she's going to end up and like Nancy yeah, Nancy he, specifically he doesn't have to want to fuck her yeah <laughs> I mean it's hard to disagree with that reading it's not something I came away with when I was watching the film like there are pedophiles in the film but they're all murdered for being paedophiles like it's not like it's sympathetic to paedophiles like it's probably an unavoidable consequence of making a movie in which the women are so sexualized without exception i i really i mean i really did think it was avoidable as i say again i think by showing nancy as an 11 year old in the second yeah part of the Bruce it's, Willis it's, story. it's that it's that scene where like she comes to him and and you know because that one, we've already that seen so- nancy twice as an adult yeah as a stripper since so you're you, you're making you're invited to make that association it, there's not that separation i, I would have no. thought the whole point of having that bit at the start of the film was 
they, you know, this is how they meet when she's a child, and then they meet a decade later. But the fact that, that you have that even, scene, even there's the continuation like of, of uh, communication between them. There's even the line where, and I don't understand why there's any reason for this line of dialogue to be there, to have an 11-year-old girl say, um, oh, you know, yes. thank you for, for the fact that I'm still a virgin. Like, yeah. that's just, oh, no, why is that line there? It's... Oh. Yeah, I hate. I did wonder whether you could you could work around that by putting the like cutting off the story not at the point where Willis is shot, but at the point at which he is put into jail. So, I don't even uh, think you need that. I, I don't think no. You need well, I don't think where you, she. Could, it's all implied. You, you don't you yeah. don't need that flashback at all. It's 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 very clearly implied. You know whether or not you think he's died at the start of the film. Once he reappears, oh, okay, he didn't die. You can fill in the gaps that she's been in contact with him since and that she knows what happened because you know about the letters. Like, yeah, it's it, it, I, that is a really unnecessary scene that definitely makes the whole plot more uncomfortable. It it, it doesn't do anything to justify it. I mean, I, I don't think I reacted to it quite as strongly as you. I just thought it's really, really weird that this suddenly turns into a romantic situation because there's no reason for it to... <laughs> And he, and he can still make every decision that he makes out of a sense of responsibility to her life. And in fact, that's better. It's actually, you know, I quite like the line just before he thinks he's going to die in the first bit where he talks about, you know, his his life for hers kind of thing. And then that's the decision he makes when he kills mm. himself. It's better if he's doing that so that, you know, someone younger than him gets to live a life without him having that actual romantic connection to her surely yeah. it's a it's it's better if he's making that decision because he thinks well my life's kind of worthless i'm giving it up for someone who's better than me not i really fancy jessica alba so i want to protect her and the counterpoint <laughs> is you could you could have this one pure relationship being at the heart of this movie if yeah. all of this kind of in this sin city this one kind of pure relationship where because and again at the start of the film he he like Oh, it might even be at the start of the second half. He refers to her as the daughter that he never had, and to then to then go down that direction, it made me really uncomfortable. And yeah. I mean, in response to what James said, I feel like that the, the existence of the Carla Gugino character and the fact that it's like shown that Nancy is st- studying criminal law in her spare time, like it's like there are other ways out. Mm. There, there are other characters. There are other professions that you can have in this city. It's just that the film isn't interested in those people, <laughs> and and the way that you can have Nancy be a stripper, you can have that if that is the character you want her to be, but then you don't have to sexualize her to the extent that the film does, because the film, the film is ogling <clears throat> her to the point that you know every. 18 year old boy who went to university in you know 2007 had the Sin City poster on their wall next to their 300 poster and it was Jessica <laughs> Alba it wasn't anyone else it was Jessica Alba I mean um, the fact that you say that as well like the in the comics like there, there's a very there's a distinction between Nancy in the comics and Nancy in the film which is Jessica Alba's contract allowed her to keep her clothes on Right. Like, so in the, like, it creates a very different portrait of the character because, yeah, she was famous enough already to keep her clothes on. Like, like I say, it creates a different portrait because, like, in the, in the film, she's like this one sort of virtuous character 
who even when she's a stripper, she's a stripper who doesn't take her clothes off. And then in the comic, she does. So, yeah, there's a separation there, which is worth noting, if not necessarily changing masses about her. And then I don't know. I mean, the the Alexis Bordell thing, I just think that is... That's a casting choice uh, that they that they specifically made, and again, they kind of like uh, it happens with a few characters where they change the eye color. But Alexis Bledel has these piercing blue eyes that, again, I just think is it's a really it's a really childlike look that they give her. She looks like a she almost looks like a doll. I mean, you're and... right though. Like Becky, Becky in the comics is I'm pretty sure supposed to be very young, if not underage. Yeah, and it, but they, I mean, they don't specifically say that here, but I don't know whether that makes it better or worse. I think maybe worse because it's it's almost the idea of the fantasy of it. I it it really watching this, it's something that I could not shake, start to finish. That that felt like something that was bubbling under the surface, and I'm sure there's going to be listeners who are listening to this now and going, oh, shut the fuck up, Joe. That's not there. You've read that into this. It's That's not a fault of this film. Well, I, okay. But the thing is, I, I like, think it is. Sin City as a film is kind of like, it's got the sort of society's misogynistic attitudes amped up to the fullest. And like, that is part of like, society's view of women is that youth is prized and like, young girls should be protected until they're at the point of sexual maturity, at which point, you know, fucking game on or whatever. And it's like, literally, you've got things like Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad wearing a daddy's little girl t-shirt. Daddy's little monster, sorry. Like, it, you know, I think that you're not wrong that it exists, but I don't think it's as specific to this film as maybe you're making it. I think it's like a, it's a whole societal thing. And you know, maybe someone, yeah, maybe possibly, someone better I've... read in feminist theory could could expand on that more. But I think you're right that it's there, and I'm no, I just it... I'm not sure it's notable that it's there. Anyone that's you know happened across the Daily Mail front page knows that <laughs> yeah, um, on you know, the Mail Online front page knows that the sexualization of children is a thing. I mean, I remember. I mean, this this probably isn't this is probably late nineties, early two thousand, whatever. But I remember like as a teenager reading a lads mag and there being a like a countdown until when the Olsen twins turned 18. Ah, fuck. Was it Charlotte uh, Church they did that with as well? There was, a, there was, Some... there was the, the tabloid said it was Charlotte Church. The, be- the best yeah. instance of that was uh, when, I think it was the Daily Star, uh, had an article in which they were horrified about the Brass Eye Paedophilia Special, yeah. which was obviously the whole point about the Brass Eye Paedophilia Special was a, it was about the media's attitudes. They, so they had a piece horrified about that, and on the page alongside it was an article about Charlotte Church's breasts, and she was fifteen. Yeah, at the time. literally, like beyond satire, literally beyond alongside parody, it. Yeah. Like you just cannot. Yeah. So I think to bring the, to to bring this back to the film, I agree that that is a thing that exists wider throughout the media and throughout culture i i just think that this is a film that i don't think the idea that it is some kind of comment holds up i think it is i know and yeah the I'm fact not... <laughs> that it's sexual the fact that it's the fact that it sexualizes both the nancy and the becky characters yeah yeah um, i'm not i'm not saying it's kind of comment. it moves it moves this beyond any kind of satire yeah i'm not saying it's a comment or a satire yeah. of it i'm just i'm saying it's like it's not notable 
that it's in this film. Like, it's definitely in this film. Yeah. I don't think it's notable. Yeah. But it's but it's not like this film is the only or the worst offender. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I think it's one of the worst, but <laughs> that's just me. That's just me. Um, okay, so that was our 15 to 20 minute uh, pedophilia corner. Um, let's talk, should we talk <laughs> let's, about the, let's not the make that a reg- then? Let's not make that a regular feature. <laughs> no, I'm hoping not. What are we covering? No, uh, no next week we're clear. No pedophilia. We've, we've, in we've, next we've, we've already we've already done Kickass. I can't remember if we mentioned Christopher Tucky during uh, our Kickass episode. I'm sure not, we did. It's been and gone. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So the big fat kill, which is the kind of the centerpiece, and I think the longest oh, of the God. of the sections. And oh boy, does this drag! <laughs> it really, is, really is a slog. I don't think the... it's without merit, like because I think it's got moments, but by God, it goes on <laughs> and on and on. <laughs> I made the mistake of trying to watch so... this in bed last night, and that was not a good idea. <laughs> the movie is two hours long. Um, it kind of falls just short of two hours before the credits, but I think you get to about 40 minutes in and you're done with the Marv section and you're going, huh. Yeah, it's really right. zipping along. How does this? Yeah. How does this movie fill out the runtime? And then I think this must this must be at least forty five fifty minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the plot is, I mean, it's like all of the stuff in the film. The plot's not that interesting. But like as like I said, that when you've got the voiceover that's not quite as effective, when you've got Owen as a protagonist who's not quite as effective, and then you kind of want the. I think the idea of this, like, self-policing gang of hookers who kind of have their area of the city, which they're allowed to rule over like their own cops, is interesting. But you walk away from it basically going, okay, there's Rosaria Dawson, and there's kind of Devon Aoki, who is there. I don't, she doesn't speak, does she? She's just there to kind of show off some martial artsy <laughs> kind of stuff. Bit racist. Mm. That's, I mean, that's, that's, I did, I did keep wondering, like, about this film, but I, I, I don't think you can track it properly, but, like, there does seem to be a sense of other to all of the key villains here. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, it feels like you've got, you've got the hard-boiled badasses of the city who are all kind of bad guys, but they could kind of coexist if they need to. And then there's, like, these well, <laughs> others who are all the, step, all the good guys worse. All the good guys are very straight white men. And yeah. literally everyone else. I mean, and that's... Rosario that's Dawson's kind of what I not mean. meant to be a villain, though, is she? Like, no, no, in, in no. In comparison to everyone else, like, she, I she's don't on think the it, good and in inverted commas side. I don't think it tracks fully throughout the movie. I just think it's like... Again, I think if you're already a little bit sceptical, you start to look for it and go, hmm, that's interesting. It's interesting the way that Benicia Del Toro has been depicted here or whatever. But I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't... I, again, I don't for a minute think that... I mean, certainly Robert Rodriguez, I don't think that that's a thing. I My tendency <laughs> throughout this, whenever I saw anything that I was sceptical of, was I wonder whether that came from the comic. Yeah, I mean, it <laughs> might be Frank Miller's thing. I'm not going <laughs> to... Not going to cast yeah. a special well, I, I, specifically, I but there are some comics I, you could read. I haven't might... read enough Frank Miller. Yeah. <laughs> and long yeah, may that continue. But... Yes. Uh, sorry, so now that we've... we've fully kind of we're gonna get sued um <laughs> now, uh, so but the, yeah so the big fat kill so we're kind of we're following clive owen 
Um, so he is dating Brittany Murphy, who is there to be smacked around by her ex, played by Benicia Del Toro. Uh, Clive Owen then comes in and roughs up Benicia Del Toro and scares him off. Uh, Benicia Del Toro then drives off to the prostitute part of town and there's a big kind of show down there, which, after I mean, Dwight follows him, Clive Owen's Dwight, so uh, he follows him. There's a show down there, uh, Jackie Boy, who is the Benicia Del Toro character, is eventually killed and it turns out that he's a cop. And he's an undercover cop, or he's like a... I guess like he is like 99% of the cops in this movie, a dirty mm-hmm. cop. And that kind of breaks some kind of truce between the hookers and the police. And that now that, that is, there is essentially opening up a territory war for that area of the city. And it, I do, and I it do kind quite of, it like kind of all gets a... A bit more. It gets a bit more convoluted than the rest of the movie, because the rest <laughs> of the movie is normally kind of like straightforward. Here's the bad guy. We need to kill the less bad guys to get to the main bad guy, and eventually we'll kill the main bad guy. <laughs> Whereas this is kind of a little bit like murky, more like political, kind of closer to your kind of Chinatown-esque noir, I guess. But while still firmly taking place in this kind of silly version of it that Sin City's created. <laughs> I do like, and I think it is a quite nice and, and what I would consider noirish bit of plotting of, oh shit, we've accidentally killed a cop, and like that 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 is this sort of line, and not that it's a moral line of. I mean, you get it, in, particularly in, I've seen it in a few different Garth Ennis comics, but um, like in in the Punisher, you know, the Punisher has a thing of the Punisher won't kill cops, and mm. I remember in Hitman, there's a whole thing of like. There's a there's a there's a dirty cop who who sets Tommy up for something, and then Tommy reasons that you know there's plenty of people that he's killed and and people he's taken revenge on, but if he kills a cop, then that you know blows open a whole can of worms and he'll be on the run for the rest of his life kind of thing. I, I like that thing of they kill someone because he seems like an utterly abhorrent well is an utterly abhorrent person, but the the very, just the technicality of the fact that he's a cop completely changes the dynamic of the situation now in this case it's not you know the police will come down on them it's it'll throw open this ridiculous turf war that i don't fully understand but i i like it as a motivating plot element um it's a it you know it's a good when you've got a situation where people just kill each other all the time (laughs) with impunity the fact that there is a circumstance in which a murder can have an effect on the plot is a is a good one so yeah, it's it's after that, I would say. Uh, the first half has a little bit of momentum. After they mm. kill him, we also have uh, Benicia Del Toro's talking head, which is quite funny. So uh, we, we think that's the Tarantino stuff. It, it, it is. Yeah, Tarant- yeah, yeah. When they're in the car is the Tarantino scene. Yeah, when, when he's talking to him. Yeah. And would this, have been the, would this have been the film that preceded Grindhouse for the two of them? Yeah, possibly. It definitely, well, chronologically, it definitely precedes Grindhouse. I don't know if there was anything in between. No, yeah. So uh, Rodriguez went Sin City, Planet Terror. So yeah, so Grindhouse is the next one. Yeah, I was trying to think where Kill Bill came. uh, Kill Bill ninety nine, maybe the film before for for Tarantino. It wasn't ninety nine. No, Kill Bill was two thousand and something. I don't know. Two thousand and (laughs) three. Yeah. I, I yeah, forget, Joe, so, yes. that you're younger than us sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so so this is uh, this is the part that they're kind of doing together. Um, they Tarantino actually shows up on the commentary on the on the DVD. Um, I didn't get that far, uh, <laughs> so I'm sure. <laughs> 
I'm not, I'm not entirely upset that I didn't get that far. But um, yeah, so th- this is, I think, where this section kind of breaks down a little bit and becomes a just like, and then these people are killing these people, and then these people are killing these people, and there's lots of gangs of people that keep turning up, and again, Clive Owen has more lives than a cat because he keeps getting <laughs> shot and there's or, or killed in some form or another and manages to keep going. Um and it turns out that Alexis Bledel has been the one who's betrayed them. Um, and Michael Clark Duncan kind of shows up as the main villain for this section. I- again, I-, I feel like something that this film does that it doesn't always need to do. In every section, there is a woman who is kidnapped by, apart from the, the kind of the buckends, but in each of the other stories, there's a woman who's kidnapped by the villain. And in every section, it's not like the hero turns up just in time. It's like Nancy gets whipped repeatedly. Carla Gugino gets her hand eaten. And in this, Michael Clark Duncan beats the crap out of Rosario Dawson. And it just feels like, you know, like, oh, we get it, it's grim, but can you stop beating up women? Like, (laughs) and uh, and, and, I mean, I talk about like, and, and that kind of the grimness, but also mixed with the cartoonishness of things. From time to time, like I say, like Mickey Rourke getting hit by a car, or the fact that like the villains in this, it's uh, the hero. Sorry, the like the ultimate thing that a hero can do to a villain to really get to them is to shoot them in the dick. Because <laughs> yeah, it happens think, a lot, doesn't think, it? So Nick Stahl gets shot in the dick twice, uh, yellow bastard, or gets shot in the dick and then gets his dick like pulverized by Bruce Willis at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, does Clive Owen do it? To someone? Or does Marv do it to someone? Marv, Marv, Marv shoots, definitely does Marv yeah. shoots someone in the stomach and then says, let me shoot lower down. Um, and then Marv also, like, that Elijah Wood gets eaten from the legs up and there's, you know, definitely the implication that that, that happens there as well. Um, it's, it's, just, it's just this weird kind of, like, child, like childish violence that, that seems... There's a lot of this film that seems there to appeal to 15-year-old boys rather than, you know, like, it doesn't feel like... For all its darkness and its grittiness, it doesn't feel like a grown-up movie. It feels like a <laughs> a movie to appeal to teenagers. Sure. I mean, and again, like, the problem is, even though, like, yeah, the villains are the ones doing the, like, beating or whatever, it's like, well, you're still invited to take glee in the cartoonishness of the violence, no matter who it's perpetrated against. It's not like it turns into fucking irreversible, like, for ten minutes or whatever. No, like it's always not. cartoonish like oh that's really cool look how stylized it is like you're never invited to imagine it is actual violence yeah like elijah wood's um heads of his victims mounted on the wall yeah that's just there for like a ah look how badass he is he eats them and then he mounts their heads and look how beautiful these women all are that he got to eat. It's it's, it's such a skeezy movie. <laughs> it makes me feel dirty watching it. Like it's a, it's a dirty world to be a part of. I mean, but at the same time, I am I am kind of watching it, and admiring it on a technical level. So it's a it's a, it's a very odd film to watch. Like it's a, it's a very strange experience watching this movie, especially twelve years removed. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it, how, like, the the sequel didn't do even slightly as well. And it's sort of as if everyone went, oh, we made a bit of a mistake there, didn't we? Let's not watch the sequel. Uh, Yeah, have you seen the sequel? I haven't. I'm looking forward to the day we do it. 
because that's the only thing that's going to make me voluntarily watch it. Yeah, because I got the I bought the Blu-ray and it had uh, like I I bought the version that had Sin City Two in the box with it, and I was okay. like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But it was funny, wasn't it? Like within a year of each other, it was like Hollywood suddenly went. I know it's been like a decade, but should we make sequels to Three Hundred and to Sin City and? I mean, I I haven't got a great idea for what we do with them other than Eva Green. Should we should we Eva Green them? I'm like, fair enough. Like if if I'm watching the, if I'm watching this movie, I'm going, yeah, Eva Green would be great in this. Um, Eva Green screen. I, <laughs> I should have held on to that. Wonderful. One. <laughs> but I remember when they, I remember when they announced that, like, oh, Sin City, a Dame to Kill for, and the Dame is Eva Green. And I go, yeah, I get it. I get. It. I get how someone would want to kill for Eva Green well, uh, and how for well year, it got she, put she would off. fit into that world just visually. It got but put yeah, off it's, for it, years and years because they wanted Angelina Jolie to do it. Oh, really? Yeah. And and then it kind of... And then when... I mean, both of the films kind of are... I have seen the 300 sequel, uh, of which Eva Green is by a country mile the best part. But it, it felt like that when they both turned up, everyone kind of went... <sighs> I, I, I mean, like... No, it's not. It's not something that I'm really interested in anymore. No. I'm interested. Did you guys? Did you guys enjoy? Sin, were you Sin City fans at the time when it first came? Out? I mean, I was. I, 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 I hadn't. You go first, Seb. No, it's because like, yeah, I, I hadn't um, seen this all the way through um, before watching it for this. Um, I had seen some of the Clive Owen sequence. Uh, in a nightclub with subtitles on. I was in the crazy house in Liverpool, and it was playing on one of the screens. Um, and I think I saw. I think I, I think I ended up watching about half an hour of it in the background. That's all That's, I've seen. That of this is film such a sad move. <laughs> Going to a nightclub and being distracted by the movies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I was just I was just perusing the. Oh, sorry, yeah, James, you want? I was I was going to say yeah, like I. I saw it at the cinema and I enjoyed it enough to buy it on DVD afterwards and like went through, I went and bought all the Sin City graphic novels just to like, cause I was intrigued by it. And it's kind of hmm. at that time, like I wasn't giving it a close feminist reading or anything. Like I, you know, I was a feminist then as I am now, but I was maybe less discerning and certainly pop culture was different. So yeah. You know, it, it's definitely a film that has aged poorly in terms of its politics, which yeah. let's not be around the bush were, you know, massively out of date at the time. Yeah, I would be, I, I'd, I'd be intrigued to watch the sequel but, to see. Yeah, I mean, the, com- the conversation, the conversation has definitely moved on from the time when it came out. Yeah. Um, and I was just, I was just reading, um, I was just looking on the Wikipedia page and seeing like how and it won this award at Cannes or whatever. And at the 2006 MTV Movie Awards, Jessica Alba won the uh, one and only time they ever handed out the award for sexiest performance, beating out Beyonce in the Pink Panther, Jessica Simpson in the Dukes of Hazard, Zhang Zi in the in Memoirs of a Geisha, <laughs> and Rob Schneider in Juice Bigelow, European Gigolo. As I say, uh, the conversation the, has the, moved on. <laughs> Yeah, the only ever winner of that award. Fascinating, fascinating stuff for the uh, for the history books. 
Um, anything else that we need to say about Sin City before we move on to the recommendation section? Um, well, if, just if we, although you say anything about Sin City, we we have we were still on the second section before. Oh no, we did talk about the third section. Uh, the, we kind of did. I, I just felt like um, the second section was the only one that we hadn't really. <laughs> uh, the only any. no, the only other thing I wanted to say about that second section was we can't let the bit with the Irish mercenaries pass. <laughs> oh god, because, <laughs> dear Christ. Like, you know, every other element of this film that is cartoonish, you can forgive because it's it's doing something out of, you know, a tradition of a certain style of movies. But what the fuck is going on <laughs> with them? What? Why are they Irish? Why do they talk about? It's like I think there's a, I think they're obviously supposed to be like ex IRA because they talk about blowing up schools and shops or something. But it's just like. Where does that come from? Why do they have those accents? It's really bad. I mean, maybe it's, it's pointless to nitpick an element like that in a, a point where the film has gone quite badly off the rails anyway. But It felt to me like it might have been something that had like was a part of the wider stories in the comics and that, that maybe that it was just like, oh, and now they're here, and they're here because they're part of that story on the page. But uh, yeah, I can't. I can't make much more of an argument for that. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> There's a real, actually, thinking about it, a real thing with the, with the. If you take the villains, as in literally like the three main villains, I guess four if you count Elijah Wood with his superpowers, um, and he's maybe the only one that's an exception to this. But in all three cases, so you've got Rutger Hauer as the priest and um, um, thingy. Um, Benicio Toro, and then uh, Nick Stahl as Yellow Bastard in the third part, and they're all just like they show up and they're horrible people, and then they get killed, and there's no threat from any of them. Like they're not; they are the villains, but they're not like worthy antagonists or anything like that. The only thing that hangs over the three lead characters in each instance is that unnamed people who you never actually see will bring down bad shit on them for killing these people. But you never actually see the people who'll do it to them. You just have this thing of, um, oh, you know, this person has got protection from above kind of, and I kind of thought with the, you know, from, from what I'd seen and heard about, you know, there was this character that, that, that in the, that yellow bastard story, that he would be this kind of arch crime lord type figure. And he's just the pathetic little shit, basically, who happens to have an influential dad. And it's, it, there's a weird sort of, yeah, I just, I don't know if it's a, again, I don't know if it's the most important unsatisfying element, but there is definitely an unsatisfying element of, um, there's nobody to really root against in, you know what I mean? They're just, as you know, with Rutger Hauer, it's just he took, and I read that actually, um, Rutger Hauer and Mickey Rourke were not in the same room for shooting that scene <laughs> because right. the Mickey Rourke stuff had already been shot. Rutger Hauer was actually cast after most of the shooting had taken place and just did that scene on his own with Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller. Um, there were, apparently there were a few instances like that where actors weren't in the same room, but that was well, that, one of the more that... notable ones. That bar um, scene where they they kind of do the one scene where the stories cross over and oh yeah Marv's yeah story. they weren't actually That's, in the same yeah. yeah yeah it's very much the arrested development of superhero movies <laughs> I think um, yeah but yeah it's, I, I think that's just one of those things that is sort of again it's 
it's part of why the film struggles to really have a strong through line in those plots. And that's why I think, again, you know, the only... What the Marv story has is it has Marv carrying it, and the other two sections don't have Marv. And so they've just got nothing else that actually that hooks you at all other than the visuals but by that point again you could you could just watch the marv segment and i think you get everything you'd want in terms of getting a sense of the style and the quality of the visuals that's definitely why Um, i came away from the film thinking i was like basically (laughs) by the end of the marv section it's shown you everything it's got to do and it's delivered every idea yeah it doesn't it doesn't do anything else interesting and beyond that it's just should have finished there yeah um I also just one final note. I, I I thought it was funny. Like you can kind of probably date a film by saying, okay, it's got Devin Aoki, um, <laughs> it's got Nick's, it's got Nick Style, uh, Brittany Murphy, and Jamie King in it. Like you're like, okay, I kind of, I, I can probably narrow that down to about two or three years max. <laughs> it's hey, funny, you know, how, like some it's, half of this cast kind of feels like. Um, like a, a a real throwback, and then you see, like I mean, oh, Josh Hartnett, I should throw into that. <laughs> oh, <God>. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, Josh Hartnett, who was who was gonna be, was he gonna be Batman or Superman at one point? Was it Superman he was gonna be? Uh, it might be Batman. I think. I think yeah. he might have been in the running for uh, the Christian Christian Bale. Bale. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, this this film was Mickey Rourke's comeback, wasn't it? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. In terms of what he, you know, the, him in Iron Man two and the Fighter wouldn't probably not exist without this no. film. Well, I think this was this was Mickey Rourke kind of had a couple of like a couple of stop start comebacks. I I think uh, the wrestler was not the, I think the wrestler not the fighter. Meant. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the wrestler was I think basically this should have been his comeback and it didn't really happen and the wrestler I think was more like Aronofsky just going let's put this guy let's put this guy in my movie. Um, and I think the wrestler then led to this this kind of like three or four years where he was showing up in things here and there, like he got he was he got put in the first Expendables movie, didn't he? But again, I think Mickey Rourke kind of architect of his own downfall with hmm. with uh, probably mostly how he acted on on his uh, on his uh, campaign trail f- for the wrestler, for which he should have won the Oscar. But he came out effing and blinding on the stage for every award, every precursor award that he won. <laughs> you look down the awards that he won. He won the Bathroom, won the Golden Globe. I'm just looking at his I mean, now. He won the Independent Spirit. He won like <laughs> five or six different um, like uh, Critics Association awards. And then you get to uh, he didn't win the SAG, and then he didn't win the Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey, come on! They just didn't trust you up on the stage. That must that has to have been what it was. Because uh, yeah. I mean, he's, I do. Really I do remember. He the... is, he's great in this. I would say he and he and Powers Booth are the are the two performances in this that I think really stand out as being a cut above everything else. Who who who? who, who oh, Senator 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 Rourke, the um. Oh, okay. Yeah. The father of the Nick Stahl character. Right. Um, and I mean, Powers Booth sadly recently departed, but was also one of the yeah. World Security Council in the Avengers, and then went on to have a, a big old role in the. Um, Agents of Shield, uh, for one se- one uh. season. Yeah, <laughs> he was also quite good in that. For what it's worth, Deadwood is his <laughs> is his main thing. Though I think what most people will know him for. <laughs> anyway, what who what, who did I interrupt? I know I was, I was just going to say like I remember the press for this and it was. T- 
shouted at the time. They were going like, this is your comeback film. And he was like going, yeah, I've learned to behave now and stuff. And uh, yeah. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, I just remember him being on stuff like Jonathan Ross and that being a, a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And this was to be quite, quite a year for Rutger Hauer turning up in this and, um, and Batman Begins as well. This, but this was the <laughs> Rutger, this was the Rutger Hauer comeback year. The Rutger Naissance. <laughs> Yeah, so many comebacks. Okay, um, look, we've we've definitely talked the film to death. Let's move on to the comic book recommendation section. Uh, what am I reading uh, this week, guys? Uh, I'll go first because I have the obvious yeah. recommendation to do uh, on only because Seb has never read since he. Um, am I right in thinking you've already read uh, one of them? Because did you get a version that had the book with it, Joe? Me? Yeah. Uh, no, I've not I've not read any since. No, okay. Well, in any case, there's no point you reading the actual graphic novels of any of these stories because they're such close adaptations <laughs> that you'll just be wasting your time. Um, yeah. So I think the one that I like the most is the collection of short stories called... And I think this indicates pretty much what Sin City is about. Uh, the collection of short stories is called Booze, Broads and Bullets. Uh, So I would recommend you read that one because it's not too long and it's got a lot of short uh, things in that kind of show the interconnectivity of Sin City as an idea. And I think whatever you can say about Frank Miller's approach to comic writing and stuff, like in Sin City, he's created a kind of living universe that he obviously had a lot a lot of knowledge about in his head. So I think it's interesting to see the sort of connective tissue from these short stories that he made. And frankly, no pun intended. And Miller. Yeah. <laughs> like this is the kind of way Frank Miller works best in like in short chunks where he's got a good idea and it gets in and gets out. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Okay. So some Sin City, Seb, you're going to recommend something not Sin City. I would like to yes. in- so... fully endorse this choice, having spoken to Seb about it before. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is like, if Sin City was good, it would be this. Yeah, I was going to say, like, yes, Sin City is probably the most famous uh, anthology crime comic, but it's not the best anthology crime comic. The best anthology crime comic is, of course, Criminal, uh, which you must have heard of, Joe. Yes, I, I definitely have. Yeah. Heard of. Uh, so written by Ed Brubaker, who of course you are already familiar with. I know you've read Velvet. What else have you read of Brubaker's? Um, uh, some of his Captain America. Okay. Um, um, so this is this is the original uh, collaboration between him and Sean Phillips, who's his most regular artist collaborator. They've done loads of things together. They've done several volumes of Criminal. They've done the Fade Out. They've done. Is, is Fatal drawn by uh, Phillips I believe, James? I, I think believe it is, so, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and there's another one as well. Uh, oh, uh, um, the new one um, that just came out, Incognito. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And there's uh, yes, the the, the, new, the kill or be killed, the new one as well. Yeah, um, they're a fantastic team. Ed Brubaker is absolutely one of the best uh, writers in comics, and certainly the best writer of crime stories in comics. Um, so, Criminal Catwoman. Didn't didn't I read his Catwoman? Oh, you did that... read his Catwoman. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's good. It's not his best work, but it is good. Um, so, Criminal is like Sin City. Um, the idea is that it's all set in the same 
world and the same locales with kind of crossover of characters but each story arc is designed to be self-contained and independent but there are overlapping elements and you know as it's gone along like a bigger picture of the kind of the world behind things has been built up some of them have ended up being almost completely standalone the, the sixth volume um which is called i think we've mentioned it before is called the last of the innocent and it's basically riverdale before riverdale it's basically like the archer <laughs> yes. character's grown yeah, yeah. up and a, and a murder mystery around them. Um, it's just like you could pick up any of the volumes and they're great. You could read them all in order. What I'm actually, I would have just told you to just pick up the first volume, which is called Coward. Um, but James pointed out, and I'm inclined to agree, that the second volume, which is called Lawless, has um, is centered around what is probably the best character in the series, uh, Tracy Lawless, who is also like Marv but more interesting um so right. it's that it's that thing of you know a big strong tough guy with a checkered past um and he's different in a lot of ways but you, i mean you'll see immediately visually when you see the cover that there are similarities visually um now the the coward is only five issues long so if you want to you could read coward and lawless and but it's the kind of thing where you'll start reading this and you will immediately just want to keep on reading every volume um they're not the quickest reads they are because they are quite dense um and there's a there's a problem i sometimes find with and it happens with brubaker stuff it happened to me with velvet where you often have to go back and reread things just to make sense of who people are in relation to one another. Sometimes you don't necessarily remember who a character is, and and they jump around in time a bit as well. Like the third volume, all the, it's three individual stories that are set in the seventies, so you meet younger versions or parents of characters from the first couple of volumes and that kind of thing. So <laughs> just it does hearing jump you around a lot, just hearing you describe <laughs> Criminal is making me want to go back and read it because it's so good. It does. It, yeah, it's it's one of those things where just when you think about it and when you remember certain character names, you're just like, oh yeah, like the um, James. I'm going to remind you of the fourth one, which is the guy who's the um, the the writer and who does all the forgeries and stuff. <laughs> that that is yes. the bad night is the most film noir. That is a totally film noir plot. Lawless mm-hmm. and coward are not so much. They're more straight up crime. Um, it's more kind of GTA style heist crime stuff. Uh, but Bad Night is totally a film noir, a bit like The Fade Out is as well. Uh, it's just great. Just read as much criminal as you want to, but if you're only going to read five issues, read volume two, Lawless, because that's the closest to this. And you'll just see how good crime comics can be when they're not <laughs> Frank Miller. <laughs> hmm. uh, fantastic. Um, and I will... I'll, I'll recommend something just at the end of this section. Um just because I remember when I first saw this movie, Sin City, in 2005 or whatever, I think I didn't see it at cinemas. Someone showed me on DVD and I was like, I don't get it. Don't like it. It looks kind of cool, but I'm kind of bored. And I was firmly at the time, like, just because they sounded so similar and, like, probably at the time making the connection, they were both noirs. Dark City is the film that this film is not. <laughs> Dark City is fantastic. Oh, man. And you should all watch Dark City because uh, 16-year-old Joe preferred it to Sin City and 28-year-old Joe uh, also prefers it to Sin City. Do you know who, and, uh, do you know who co-wrote Dark City? Uh, I do because I'm looking at the uh, <laughs> Wikipedia page. Uh, David yeah. Goya. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, the David Goya thing, we could, I mean, David Goya wrote the bloody Batman trilogy and there's lots of good stuff in there. 
I, I, I have, I have not, I've not seen Dark City since I was a teenager, yeah. which was around <laughs> about the time it came out. But <laughs> that that would make a good double bill with the Matrix in terms of going back and reliving the the late nineties. It was yeah. Dark City. I loved, I loved did, Dark City. Dark City did badly as well, didn't it? It was like a flop yeah, when probably, it came out. I think yeah. Alex Alex Proyas Alex Proyas films tend to. Yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so uh, if you watched Sin City and thought that was a that was a noir film, but now I want to watch a good neo noir film. Go and watch Dark City, uh, which plays with all the conventions in much more interesting ways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's move on now, though, to our final section, which is the pitch. Um, but before we do this week's pitch, uh, Seb, we have a little bit of admin to do. On our Valyrian episode, James and I just had to go head to head against each other on the pitch. Um, can you remind our listeners of of what we pitched and who you've decided that the winner is? I seem oh, to yeah. remember last time. Last time you were the judge, you awarded neither of us the win. That was fine. <laughs> um, yes, I. Uh, I'm going to have forgotten one of the characters next. Can can you let, let's have you two recap? I'll tell you. I'll say what the pitch was, and you two can recap what your pitches were. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it was uh, you. You had to find comic book characters that Dane DeHaan and um, uh, Cara Delevingne uh, could play that would I serve think I them. I went. I went Mad Hatter and Emma Frost. Yeah, and yeah. James went for and I pitched, um, Jamie um, Madrox yeah. and Layla Miller. I've forgotten her name, Layla Miller. Um. I what I wanted to do was I wanted to split uh, this because you had two each, so I, I could have I could have copped out by giving half the win <laughs> to each of you. Um, the problem that I have is that um, I don't really because I've never really read Peter David's X Factor. I don't really know Layla Miller that well as a character. Uh, whereas I do, I like Emma Frost. I think she's a great character. So, so pitching her in a movie is is a probable win. Um, I would therefore have said Joe for the Cara Delevingne one and James for the the um, Dane DeHaan. But I feel James, you have to lose it on a technicality because you suggested that he should play a character whose hook is that he has lots of different iterations of himself that all have slightly different personalities. And I do not believe that Dane DeHaan is in any way capable of playing different versions of himself. In fairness, I, uh, I only suggested that he play Madrox because I wanted a Layla Miller film with the two of them. So, right. I, you know, I'll give um, I hedged my bets, James. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, I think, I mean, I don't really see much merit in doing a film around the Mad Hatter uh, at all. But I <laughs> no, think... he's not. It's not his film. He's just in the background. He's like, a, <laughs> he's like the scarecrow in the Dark Knight Rises. He'd just, he he'd just, be, he'd just he be a poor up. man's Jim Carrey Riddler. Um, but I think, as much as it pains me to do it, I've, I've got to give the win to Joe. <laughs> Nailed it. Well, Seb, that goes into your column in the W's anyway. It's just, it's oh, James brilliant! Watt. Yeah. Oh, you should have said Watt that beforehand. Said <laughs> oh, I didn't want. Didn't want to. Didn't want to swing the vote. Um, it's all right. Should, should we do this week's pitch then? I'm confident my pitch this week is going to win. So double pitch action this week. Anyway, I'm confident we um, may have. Unless you've done something crazy, I feel like we've probably picked the same thing. But <laughs> we've definitely not picked the okay. same thing. No. Chance. Okay. Great. He's done something crazy. <laughs> So this week, I thought spinning off of Sin City, um, it would be a fun idea to kind of take this film noir idea and say, 
Along the lines that, you know, if you say that we put Captain America in a conspiracy thriller in The Winter Soldier or we put Iron Man in a um, buddy cop movie in Iron Man 3, which superhero would be best suited to being placed into a film noir? So any superhero, you can kind of like make a film noir with them at the centre of it. Um, James, I'll come to you first. Okay, look, I... I want to go on record first as saying the real answer to this is Daredevil because, you know, <laughs> it just is. However, my pitch <laughs> is, um, Joe, how familiar are you with the previous iterations of the Incredible Hulk? Uh, not so very. when the Hulk first appeared, he oh, was he God. was grey, and later he turned to green. Yeah, yeah, I know for, that. and that was because of a printing error, essentially. That made grey difficult right. to reproduce. Um, a few years down the line, they decided to bring back the grey version of the Hulk with a different personality. And one of the things they did with the grey Hulk, who was a bit weaker but a lot smarter than the green Hulk, was set him up as a bouncer in an LA nightclub. And he used to wear a suit and call himself <laughs> Joe Fixit. So I would like to do a Joe Fixit Hulk film where he's a bouncer in a nightclub and, you know, he gets into associated scrapes in a kind of noirish alley setting. <laughs> I feel I feel like Seb sat there rubbing his hands. I want it, going, I want it to be I want it to be Mark Ruffalo Mark Ruffalo mo capping and I want him to wear the hat and like hang out with the Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and all that stuff. <laughs> I want it. I just want it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I love the pitch, James. I love the idea of it. <laughs> I just, I just already don't think it's. Gonna I want win. the movie to be called Joe Fix It. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I've got to say that I almost don't want to pitch mine now because I, I do feel like James's needs to happen. Um... <laughs> Come on, Seb. What have you got? You've, you've taken this seriously. I feel. And we're not that. Uh, well, no, it's just more. I've just gone for the most incredibly obvious option. Um, which but is, not Daredevil? But no, The Punisher. Ah, there we um, go. And obviously, the, th- the thing about The Punisher is, depending on what tack you take with him, he's not necessarily a noir character because <laughs> really he comes from, uh, you know, you have that kind of black and white morality thing. And really, he comes from an inspiration of like 70s revenge vigilante films, really. But I think it's so easy to put him in a noir setting because all you have to do is put him in a situation that snowballs out of his control and he is the perfect character to then because he's 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 just he's got all of the attributes of a noir lead character you just have to put him in that so you might have to transplant him when james said la i realized that actually the punisher is based in new york and and a good noir should always be in la not new york so have have the story be set in la but basically the 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 triggering thing and it kind of comes back to something i talked about before with sin city is have frank for some reason go over the line that he's drawn for himself and kill a corrupt cop and at that point the police are after him for killing a cop and he's in this scenario where he kind of knows that by his code he's in the wrong um so it's not just the thing of you know i i am the gun-toting hero and i am right there is that element of moral ambiguity to it and just 
I mean, Frank Castle in a in a film noir, it just it just makes sense. I appreciate that it's 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 not as well thought through as James's idea, but then it wasn't James who did the thinking through for his idea. I mean, in this in this pitch, um, in this pitch, is there room for say a gamma powered uh, bodyguard? Yes, very much so. In fact, I I would suggest that that could probably be the reason why the Punisher's in LA in the first place. There we go. I think that I think that ties that together quite nicely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my idea would be a Daredevil spin-off. Um, Hang on, Wait, has this turned into <laughs> Joe gets to play the pitch all the time yeah. now? Because I've got that, I've got about eight it's all right, ideas. It's all right, we can vote him down. I just no, I I just want to spin off the Joey Pants character from uh, <laughs> Joey Pants Ben Urich. Okay, imagine yeah, the, him having his own the Joey uh, Pants Ben Urich, and actually just Ben Urich generally is yeah. Is, there's a lot of Marvel characters who it would suit. I mean, the other there's, really there's obvious so thing you many, could say there? is to just do something in in the Batman universe. You can't put Batman himself as the lead character in a in a noir because while you've got the trappings, again, the character is wrong for that. But I think you could very <laughs> easily do a noir set. This was my other idea, but I'm going to pitch it anyway because we're having a free for all. It seems um, <laughs> where that's where you have a character, um, a a, a, um, a what's his name, ah. Uh, um, Raymond Chandler, Marlow, a, a, a Marlow type character in Gotham City who gets caught up in a scenario where it's not the police that are going to potentially bring him down. It's Batman. It's Batman is the spectre in the background um, of a noir story in the way that he's the spectre in the background of Gotham Central. So um, nice. You could do that. Kate Loads Bishop. of ideas. It's a good Kate genre. Bishop in LA, right? Yeah, the Kate Bishop LA. Well, that that literally was that was literally her in Robert Altman's Long uh, Goodbye. And honestly, <laughs> like all of the all of the stuff on Netflix, Marvel, you think you're flirting so close to it. One, like one of your characters is a lawyer. One's a PI. Just commit to the I mean, idea the, of it. In Jessica Do a Jones, noir with Jessica Jones. I was going to say, in Jessica Jones, they were like, we're going to make Jessica Jones a bit noirish. And what that meant was she drinks a lot and has, a jazz, and has a jazz soundtrack. For three episodes, then it goes <laughs> yeah. away. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, similarly, I thought maybe the closest we've actually got to it on screen was um, season two of Agent Carter, which mm. uh, obviously yeah, more, which has too, that, too that much Marvel LA, stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. Definitely has. I mean, with the stuff with the the lake in the first episode and all that, so it feels feels that feels Chinatowny. Hang on, can uh, I win by pitching Agent Carter season three <laughs> with Kate in black with, and white? The only difference is it's in black and white with Kate Bishop. Yeah, <laughs> you, every, anyone could always win with bringing Peggy back, but not resurrected. That's not cool. <laughs> I will not accept it if it happens. You don't know she died. Um, I, I felt it, James. I felt it in my off, heart. Off screen. Doesn't count. <laughs> I don't even know. I've forgotten the original pitches now. I don't. The original <laughs> pitches. What would you next like to see out of a Hulk film? <laughs> <laughs> Can we just say everyone's a winner this week and move yeah. on? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll take so that. that. <laughs> yes. Finally. <laughs> we finally got to the point where we are openly having no respect for the pitch as a real concept <laughs> where there's a winner. <laughs> Ah, okay. Well, that's the end of this week's podcast. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. 
Um, and as mentioned earlier, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. Uh, we spoke before about how we'd revised and streamlined our backing levels on there now. Um, and we've also lined up some possibilities for some special bonus episodes um, if we hit some targets on Patreon uh, for our Patreon backers. Um, so if you'd like to hear those, you could head to the page and contribute to help us hit those targets. Um, James, we have some new Patreon backers to thank this week. Yep. Uh, can we thank Stephen Jessup and Sam Clements? I mean, we can, we can thank Sam when we see him in person, but... Yeah, we know Sam. He's uh, he's a great guy. In fact, let's just... Sam presents the Picture House podcast, which is uh, fantastic. One of the best movie podcasts out there with... Uh, yeah, with in fact... friend of the, ours, uh, Simon Renshaw. The so only, reason, the only reason we've not asked them to guest on this yet is because we want to do it in a really special time and we don't know when that's <laughs> going to be. So one day you'll probably yeah, hear and Sam. Two, and har- harvest some of their listeners. Yeah, yeah, quite... There's two of them. We don't. We don't. We don't. We don't want to split them up either, do we? Like, they were on raging bullshit back in the day, in the day, guys. Like, like you two. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like former former. It's pod like friends. the epicenter of UK film podcasting. Um, and James, you had something you wanted to plug as well. Yeah. Um, uh, so, if you've been listening for months and months, you may remember that in February. Um, an actual real-life comic that I edited by my friends Abigail Brady and Steve Horry uh, released its first issue. And issue two of that is finally out on... Well, it's it will be out by the time you hear this. It'll be on Comixology. It's called Trans Realities. Uh, issue two is up there, and you can still get issue one. So, you know, if you want to see me i would do that i would if you haven't read one get one and then read two <laughs> yeah that that, that is the that's that the classic way of doing order. it <laughs> that's the, the joe way yeah. is never to skip the first part and i can say because i haven't read it uh, because i haven't read it because i didn't write it i can say that it's genuinely good and all my... I, was say, I should I, I should hope that as the editor yeah. you have read it i mean my my role on it was essentially to say that's good this is good keep doing it yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, excellent. Okay, so that's Trans Realities Issue 2 on Comixology. Okay, so that, that is definitely it for the podcast this week. Uh, so you can find more episodes of the show at cinematicuniverse.com, uh, along with news, reviews, and features by all of us. Uh, you can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at cine underscore verse, or send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. famous man once said, we create our own demons. Who said that? What does it even mean? Doesn't matter. I said it because he said it. So now he was famous and that's basically getting said by two well-known guys. I don't, uh, I'm going to start again. Let's track this from the beginning. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks time with Iron Man 3. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.